Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats to be in touch with the show. We also invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes delivered right to you through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. We invite you to listen, enjoy, please share, and leave reviews as well for the program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Uh, well, you know what, Scott? I'm not going to try to conceal my disappointment today. Uh, I was promised that we would be covering some really fancy schmancy big deal of a band, but instead all I got was this, well, you know. <laughs> yes, instead you got everyone's favorite fifth band. Everyone's fifth <laughs> favorite band in the name of one of the band members. Uh, Jeff, you can find him on Twitter at EsotericCD. Political Beats, the program where we talk to people uh, in politics, covering politics, uh, analyzing politics, working in politics, but nothing political at all. We talk about the favorite music of our guest. And uh, before we get to the band itself, we introduce our guest for this week's program. He is the co-editor of Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well-Lived, the New York Times bestselling collection of his late father's speeches. Also works at a public relations firm in Alexandria, Virginia. And you've seen him writing in the Washington Post, National Review, the Weekly Standard, Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. Find him on Twitter at CJ Scalia. He is Christopher Scalia. Chris, welcome on to the program. Thank you, guys. You know, uh, another night slowly closes in. <laughs> and I feel so lonely. But, but it's good to be on the show with you. <laughs> Wonderful to have you. And um, we normally ask guests here, how in the world did you get sucked into the world of politics? People might, I guess, guess by your, by your last name. I'm still going to open the floor for you to explain how you kind of get into this world of politics, Chris. Well, I, I took a very long road there. Um, I first went into academia and I was a professor for some time before uh, switching careers just a couple of years ago, uh, going into PR um, because I wanted to I did want to get involved in politics um, but also wanted to kind of flex my writing muscle a little bit and thought PR might be a good way to do it. So uh, I work at a PR firm, as you said, just outside of Alexandria that works with uh, primarily center of right uh, political organizations, uh, 501Cs, things like that. We also do some work for corporations. So I'm basically the guy sending annoying emails or making annoying telephone calls to a lot of your other guests <laughs> trying to get my clients in the news and get their side of the story told and uh today he's the annoying voice with us here on the program <laughs> uh chris scalia uh, we we get to your your chosen band here and it is a a, a foursome from uh, Rockford, Illinois, where I lived for about a decade or so. So I will be sprinkling in stories here and there through the program of uh, real uh, firsthand experiences with uh, Cheap Trick family members, <laughs> band members themselves, and just weird stories you pick up from being a, a resident of Rockford, Illinois. When you move, you actually have to sign this resident form that says if someone asks, you must say your favorite rock and roll band is Cheap trick they make you sign it before you can move into the city of rockford uh cheap trick's been around for goodness now 40 plus years uh and actually you know rick nielsen the lead guitarist and main songwriter had been playing for even longer than, than that uh before cheap trick came together my i think my introduction probably was you know the flame and uh and lap of luxury but shortly thereafter listening to classic rock music you are of course 
uh, inundated with Cheap Trick uh, tunes, whether it be I Want You to Want Me, whether it be Dream Police, whether it be Surrender, they are everywhere. And uh, I, I will admit, when I move to Rockford is when I begin digging deeper into the catalog, because, again, you can't turn around without hitting a Cheap Trick reference in the city of Rockford. And you begin to uh, to find out just how really, really excellent this band was. Uh, and it, they are tarred a bit, I think, in many minds by that 80s output. And I can't say I blame people, I suppose, because a, gra- a giant portion of the 1980s is a total loss for Cheap Trick and even stretching into the 90s. And uh, much like the the line from Fast Times, people forget the charisma of Robin Zander and Rick Nielsen. They forget the tunes, uh, the really good tunes from the late 70s and, and into the very early 80s. And as we'll talk, some pretty decent late career albums as well. So I, I'm a big, big Cheap Trick fan, have been for quite a long time, and uh, and am looking forward to discussing this great band from Rockford, Illinois. Well, I don't even know what to say about Cheap Trick <laughs> because this is a band that literally did not exist for me in any sort of conscious way up until about a week and a half ago when we booked the show with Chris. Of course, like every other you know, sentient human being who listened to classic rock radio during the 1990s and onwards, I was aware of I Want You to Want Me, the live version, where, of course, it's I want you to want me cue throngs of screaming japanese girls right <laughs> and then you have this really like it's almost bubble gummy but really just robust power pop song great song but a one-shot deal a one-hit wonder to me that's all cheap trick was i remember and i've talked to so many times about like my experiences in music stores in the 1990s and like walking through them i saw that what sex america cheap trick box set on the wall yep. and i was i was intrigued to buy other box sets from bands that I, I didn't know anything about her. I wasn't familiar with their music, uh, but I never got the cheap trick one. I was never even really intrigued by it. I think I may have just picked it up once and leafed through it, leafed through it and thought, well, I've never heard of any of these songs. I don't know. Is this band really that good at all? And the reason, of course, is because they, they became a song. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that they are a song that is literally defined on classic rock radio by that one hit. None of the other stuff, even the flame, which I, you know, had not heard until, which is a number one hit single in 1988. In fact, I hadn't even heard it until, um, you know, this week. Everything has faded away except for that one thing. So I didn't give them really any credit. People would some occasionally mention, "Yeah, Cheap Trick's good." I'm like, "Yeah." Like other than the fact that they had done that song, the thing I knew the most for was that they'd recorded a couple sessions with John Lennon, mm-hmm. for Fantasy, that didn't end up making it onto the album, but or have been released in outtakes and actually are really good. Um, so it was a shocker, a real shocker to come back to them. Uh, to, to to find them basically for the first time as we were you know getting ready for this show and realize that you know holy crap these these guys really could put together some amazing songs and it's almost criminal to me that like I never knew anything about them I can kind of understand in retrospect why it's all faded away despite the absolutely clear objective quality of their their songs is because there's just there isn't a lasting market for you know stuff that was just really clean, well-written, funny, interesting pop 
power pop, hard rock stuff. Some of that has survived, but unless it was truly, you know, mega chart conquering like Boston or something like that, um, you know, the rest of it, it, it didn't have a niche. It was just great music. So, like, I think of other bands that fell into this bag in different ways. XTC is a band that's always been yeah. a favorite of mine. Never had any chart success. They're beloved only of, like, very bizarre people with thick Coke bottle glasses, kind of like <laughs> me. Uh, and Cheap Trick is kind of like the, the more hard-rocking version of that, that the people who, like, love them absolutely adore them. And they're onto something that, that you've been missing your entire life. So it was actually just a huge pleasure for me to go back and discover all of their early albums. Basically, up through about 1985 or so, they were making consistently great records and then you know the rest of that you know that that next decade or so as i agree i agree with what you said scott i'm you know the less said about that the better but uh wow uh what a wonderful surprise i've had a couple of these on political beats and uh this is just another one of them and, and boy it's one of the reasons i enjoy the show so much and we should have done this earlier but i messed up the order we go to our guest now chris scalia who is supposed to tell us why you love Cheap Trick, Chris, how you got into them, why other people should care about their music. Well, I think Jeff is Jeff's story there. Thank you for sharing, Jeff. Um, I think that's a reason. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> it, I think that that's a reason people, uh, w- one of the reasons I wanted to do this show is because I think that they are forgotten. They are underrated. People do know them for I Want You to Want Me, Maybe Surrender, even the flame, which was their only number one hit, that's been forgotten. That's for some reason that's not even on classic rock radio. It's not a great cheap trick song, but it's as good as any other power ballad that you hear on the radio. And I never hear that. You know, I'll hear Winds of Change, but I, I won't hear that one. <laughs> um, and it, it frustrates me. I do think that you know, for all the reasons uh, Jeff mentioned, they've just been forgotten. Um, they're they're a little they're eccentric. They're weird. They're um, they're maybe. If they went further with their hard rock side, maybe they'd be more respected. Or if they went further with their power pop side, maybe they would have found uh, a wider audience or, or a more enduring audience. Uh, but maybe because they were kind of in the middle there, uh, they just never found out that audience. But I, like you, Scott, I uh, started listening to Cheap Trick in the late 80s when they had their little comeback with the Lap of Luxury album and the, fr- and the Flame most a lot of my musical interests I, I kind of inherited from my older brothers and sisters, um, but none of them like Cheap Trick. Still, none of them like them, and kind of laugh at me that I listen to them. So I, I learned about Cheap Trick from a friend of mine who said to me uh, on the phone once. He said uh, this was in seventh or eighth grade. He said, "Chris, um, there's a band I want you to listen to. Now, now hear me out." And he was preparing me as if because he knew I think that that I would. Go, uh, you know, I'd be very skeptical about listening to Cheap Trick because <laughs> at that point, everybody knew The Flame. I wasn't a huge fan of the song then. But uh, I borrowed Lap of Luxury from him, and then I, I dubbed his copy of the tape. Um, and and I loved that album. Um, I'll talk more about that. I think I'll probably be the only person defending that album or singing its praises <laughs> at all. But uh, I, I still enjoy that album, as late 80s as it is. Uh, and then the next album after that, uh, Busted, I enjoyed that quite a bit too. Um, so really f- through high school, um, well, that's middle school. And then in high school, I got into Live at Budokan um, because on the way to a friend's birthday party, 
or is it, we were driving up to Baltimore to go to the aquarium and I was in my, my friend's dad was driving us up there and the classic rock station played, I want you to want me. And I think this is ninth grade and pretty sure it was the first time I heard the song. Certainly the first time I really noticed the song and I loved it immediately. So after that day, I tracked it down at a you know a tape store, um, and Budokan became kind of kind of the touchstone album for me for a while. Um, but really, up until the early 2000s, those were the only three albums of theirs I had. In the early 2000s, I was living in Madison, Wisconsin. Drove through Rockford often when I visited my sister outside of Chicago. So I would always play live at Budokan on the way there, and then. But I started getting more into power pop. This was when the new pornographers were first releasing their their early albums. Brendan Benson, um, mm-hmm. power pop acts like that were kind of on my mind. So I thought, well, Cheap Trick is you know a seminal power pop band. I should I should get some of those early studio albums. So I did a deep dive in the early two thousands, and I was just amazed at how good the albums were. So many tracks I had never heard of or that I knew from Budokan, but still really enjoyed the studio versions of. Um, all of those first albums. And and even um, I got one of their later live albums as well. That I really enjoyed it. Uh, so that that's when I did a deep dive in, into the catalog and when I really became a proper, I guess, Cheap Trick fan. Um, and they've, you know, they I, I love power pop and they're great at that, but they're, and they can get pretty syrupy with the power pop, but their hard rock stuff is fantastic too. I just, I, I think that these guys are, they're all excellent at what they do. They're one of those bands where there's not really anybody weighing them down. There's there are no weak parts. Um, Bunny Carlos on drums is a lot of fun at his best. And the I think one of the reasons their '80s material is weak is because he's he's not really carrying his weight, or they're not letting him. Tom Peterson, the bassist, um, uh, just and and the whole the whole shtick they have of kind of the the kind of pinup looking model. <laughs> Uh, Tom Peterson, the bassist, and Raman Zander, the lead singer, are really good-looking guys. They're on the front of their early albums. And then you've got Bunny Carlos, who uh, looks he, hes wearing a, he looks like Dwight Schrute from The Office. Um, <laughs> and we were joking about this before the show today. I said he literally looks like the band's accountant yeah. who, wan- who wandered into the publicity shoot, the photo shoot, by accident. And they just said, like, oh, screw it. Go with it. It's good. Let it go. Ah, who cares? And then um, – <laughs> And then uh, Rick Nielsen has this kind of this Bowery Boys look. He, he wears, you know, especially in early albums, he's wearing cardigans over a T-shirt with a bow tie and a kind of a break, breaking away style uh, cycling cap. So he looks, you know, self is trying to look pretty goofy. Um, I like that shtick. I, I like I kind of was a, it was a good representation of who they were. They were kind of hard rock. They were kind of cool, but they were also kind of kind of geeky. And I like that shtick about them. 
Well, that that's a good uh, summation of how the band is is constructed and how it came together. First caveat: anyone, any band with a a, a, a lifeline as big as Cheap Trick, we are not going to be able to hit every corner or every little piece of trivia that major Cheap Trick fans might want us to get to. We are going to do our best. We're going to do our best. So to and start, so we just as a warning, we plan to give the proper emphasis to their most important album, The Doctor. We're going to be, <laughs> yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be spending the bulk of our time on that. Right. One. And so the second just, hour, we're going to be discussing the soundtrack songs. Yes, all the OST music that will be the big focus of this podcast. And that's a good description of how the band is constructed. Robin Zander, the golden boy with the great hair and the amazing voice in the three-piece suit up front. Tom Peterson, the dark-haired, good-looking guy playing bass, 12-string eventually. And then Bunny Carlos, the uh, chain-smoking, neck-tied drummer. And Rick Nielsen, as Chris mentioned, uh, the weird guy wearing sweaters and baseball caps. It's an interesting amalgam of talent. Nielsen had been in the business or working in music longer than anyone else since back in about 60, 1961 or so, if you can believe that. And uh, actually first got together with Tom Peterson in 1967 in a band called Fuse. And that band kicked around for a while. They ended up adding uh, Buddy Carlos around 1971 and formed, uh, uh, well, changed their name to Sick Man of Europe. And uh, Robin Zander was the last piece. He would not come on board until about 74. Cheap Trick technically had uh, a lead singer before Robin Zander named Randy Zeno Hogan, um, who was still friendly with, with the guys. That, that, that was not a bad firing, I guess. But Robin Zander... By the way, I just want to point out, how do you know these guys are total nerds, is that they actually named their band Sick Man of Europe. Yes. Which is you know, like <laughs> a, a classic historical term that used to be used to refer to the Ottoman Empire yep. and then to Austria-Hungary. So like, this is, you've really, really got to be... Right there. You gotta, yeah. Exactly. You've got to really be deep in the weeds of history yeah. nerdery in order to find that as a name. I just loved that little detail when I was, like, again, doing my research i found out about it on wikipedia but again i'm sorry for interrupting you scott so we're, we're coming up to the debut here. Yeah. yeah so peterson carlos and nielsen all went to the same high school in rockford guilford high school xander went to harlem just a little bit north in uh, in mcchesney park and so they're all local boys northern illinois these guys toured their butts off when they started they're playing 250 shows uh, a year anywhere and everywhere uh, around the upper midwest and uh, finally caught a break when Jack Douglas, who's the uh, producer of Aerosmith's early stuff, saw them play at a bowling alley in crucial, crucial Waukesha, Wisconsin. And yes. uh, basically went back to Epic and said, you, you have to sign this band. And they did. And that brings us to the, the debut album uh, released early 1977, the self-titled Cheap Trick. And from here, I'll hand it off to one of you guys to, to begin your ruminations on this debut from Cheap Trick. Chris, you go first. Okay. Well, uh, this is a this is more of a hard rock album than a power pop album. It's uh, it's short and sweet. Actually, it's short and, and dark. Really, um, the first track uh, is I guess originally uh, Scott. You can refresh my memory about the history here, but the the first track now is a song called "Ello Kitties," but "Ello" spelled E L O, so I, I take that as an homage to E L O, one mm-hmm. of their one of their influences here. Um, e L O, and particularly the move, um, Jeff Lynne's band before E L O, and Roy Wood's band before E L O. It's just a great opening track. Uh, it it's it actually sounds like. Rock and Roll Part Two at the beginning by Gary Glitter, um, 
and and throughout the song actually it has kind of that no 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 guitar part to it and it's i love this track because it captures the weirdness of early cheap trick uh again rockford illinois but robin zander is singing um like with some strange cockney accent it's very strange and throughout this first album he's got a lot there's a lot of kind of english influence and yeah. strange voices and in every song xander's voice is just fantastically loud and angry i think he i think he screams or yells in virtually um every song the, the one exception is mandicello mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a beautiful uh ballad uh I think really kind of the only soft song on this album. Um, but so Hello Kitties is a great homage to some of their influences. Um, and the entire song, Xander's kind of on the verge of yelling. And then towards the end, he finally just lets loose. songs like this that are kind of um they're character driven lyrics the, the second track is called daddy should have stayed in school um and that's a really dark song um about uh about a dirty old man basically uh but it, xander is speaking from that guy's perspective kind of like an aqualung sort of thing um this really gross line where he's apparently hitting on students as i understand it he's saying i'm i'm dirty but my body is clean it's just really gross but xander's voice is uh i don't know it's kind of entrancing and just the the bass driven feel of the song is is really hypnotic it's horrible in the best possible way (laughs) yes exactly exactly um and then another standout song for me on this album uh is uh speak now or forever hold your peace it's a cover of a terry reed song uh, I think their covers are virtually always better than the original. And I, I include this one. I know maybe that's just because I heard it first and know it better, but I do think this one's better than the original. Um, this is another really kind of bass driven, uh, slow song that move that slowly progresses and builds up. And it's also a great example of how Bunny Carlos can just, kill on the drums i think he really kind of owns this this song especially towards the end um it's a it's a dark album throughout i'll let you guys talk about some of the tracks you you like um but it's a dark album throughout and if i remember correctly kurt cobain uh at one point said, said he really liked this album he's kind of embarrassed to say it because you know it's cheap trick but a lot of grunge uh folks is grunge folks how hip do i sound there <laughs> a lot of artists during the grunge era um billy corgan is another yes. um uh kind of paid homage to cheap trick and uh you can see why especially with this album it's really dark it's really brooding brooding and it's bass heavy in so- some of the ways that grunge was how do you do young people and grunge folks <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no. okay 
<laughs> I too enjoy flannel shirts. Exactly. Uh, so again, you know, I, I, reminding everybody here that I'm the guy who came to this group literally for the first time, you know, like a week and a half ago. This is, I, you know, how do I do these things? I, I just literally assemble, you know, my albums and I, and I do it chronologically. So where did I start? I started with Cheap Trick, obviously the debut album, and I started with the version that has ELO or LO Kitties uh, up front. And so I heard that first song, first two songs, and I thought, well, okay, this is good. This is hard rock. You're right. You know, I, I thought of them power pop. You, they, I want you to want me kind of, a, you know, mold. And then this is much, much tougher. Mm -hmm. And I thought these are good songs. And, you know, they're, 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 they're clever. They're, they're, they've got the real, you know, they've got an edge to them. But they didn't totally grab me. It was the third song on this record that I would then find out would end up setting the template for what I think is absolutely what made Cheap Trick great, which is a song called Taxman, Mr. Thief, which, you know, again, you know, I'm a conservative in good standing. I can relate to that title. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Taxman, Mr. Thief, but it's not just a hard rock song. It's a hard rock song that keeps developing and that has – it's so much smarter than like a normal – say you know a black sabbath riff or a riff from like another standard like slade or something like that this is an intelligently written pop song as well as being a hard rock song it develops in that middle section into that wonderful wonderful chord progression and i thought to myself as i heard it, it was like okay i get it i see what people say when they say this is power pop because this is of course them still kind of in their more rough edged years it's the next album where they get into the quote power pop vibe um, but man, what a fantastic song. The other one I really want to focus on on the debut album is, um, gosh, yeah, I'm going to have so much difficulty putting together my top five songs at the end of the show. But uh, who could ever pass over Cheap Trick's debut album without talking about the genius that is? He's a whore. All right. First of all. That's a great, great song title. He's a whore. But it's even better than that. When you listen to the lyrics, it's, it, it goes to show you how clever Rick Nielsen was as a lyricist in those early days. You know, it, it begins with that, like, you know, have you seen her face? What is it? Like, she's got a face that would stop a clock, mm -hmm. you know, and with that, I would surely not stop to look in her eyes. And you think you know where this song is going. Let's say that you didn't have the title announced. You think this is just going to be another one of those, oh, this this beautiful girl, but she's just a gold digger. Oh, you know, she's going to break your heart. But that's not what the song's about at all. Because then the next, next lyric, he says, like, but her money's green, and it's still so close to my reach. Anytime at all. And he's the one who's actually the whore. He's like, I'm going to take her for a ride with this money bag by my side. And then you realize it's about him being a gigolo. A gigolo is the only way to go. <laughs> he's the whore. <laughs> yeah. I'll do anything for money. Look at the things I write. <laughs> Look at the stories that I can tell. And it's just a wonderful inversion of the normal, like, you know, the stupid kind of cock rock kiss you know alice cooper gender dynamics that you would expect from a hard rock song it turns it inside out and it, you know and, and then you realize that that your robin zander is singing from the perspective of like you know actually i'm the gold digger here i'm the one that's taking advantage of her uh and you know in 1976 77 this is the last thing that you would have expected you know like you know a sort of you know generically like hard rock band to do and i love that kind of inversion and that was truly for my mind the first thing that made me you know think to myself okay this band has just a lot more intellectual horsepower under the hood than you would have thought from just the way the music sounds. So the 
jump in with a, a couple of yeah. uh, thoughts yeah. about both those songs first i mean both of these songs show their beetle their i mentioned their elo influence but but here the beatles influence is is clear but they do really fun things with it i think so Taxman, mr thief it, you know a beatles line right um they even refer some of the line or some of the song uh refers to Taxman, mr heath which is straight from the Beatles' Taxman, and which is weird because what do guys from Rocks, Rockford know about Mr. Heath? He's, you know, the, he's <laughs> Minister of Parliament or maybe the Prime Minister, I can't remember, um, before, you know, in another country in another time. It's just kind of a random shout-out to the Beatles. I, I appreciate those moments um, that recur a lot in Cheap Trick, and, including in He's a Whore. You, you mentioned that, that t- the line in that song, Anytime at All, and it's almost like he's he's self-consciously echoing the Beatles anytime at all. Exactly. Uh, yep. But but that song, He's a Whore is great also because I've mentioned all these other bands, but that opening riff is basically just a punk riff. Um, it's just very straightforward punk-driven guitars that you don't get you get occasionally in Cheap Trick, but think of the year. I mean, this was this was uh 77, so it would have been a good time to to bring some punk material in. But as you said, it developed in really interesting directions. I mean, didn't John Johnny Ramone say that he stole the riff from He's a Whore for one of the Ramones' big hits? I can't remember which one it was. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I think I read that, of course, you know, doing my research. I, it sounds completely, you know, plausible to me when I, when I listen to the <laughs> song. So it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, that is right. It's a punk riff, and they do it. Oh, you know what? I just found it. It's the KKK took my baby away, which is <laughs> yeah. a, a great, a great Ramon song. Yeah, and Johnny Ramon says, like, he, he, he took it from He's a Whore. Totally yeah. understand. I didn't know that. That's awesome. This yeah. first, this first album, the phrase that I assigned to it, menacingly weird. Uh, yeah. From start to finish, uh, and in the sound of it, you know, Chris mentioned this is very much uh, a hard rock and not a power pop album. It, uh, Jack Douglas and the band wanted to to reproduce that the power and the rawness of their live show, which they were so good at, and I think they did a pretty darn good job of, of doing it. Chris also mentioned, you know, which song starts the album. It, the album had a side A and a side one, and so it was kind of like a little joke. There's no B material here. It's all it's all side one. But that meant when they put uh, pressed the CD, they did have to choose a, a a side one, and they chose wrong according to the band. The band wanted it flipped. They they want uh, Hello Kitties to be the first track uh, that you hear. So when they redid it in their authorized version, that Hello Kitties went back to the first track on the album. Uh, you guys did a great job talking about. Uh, a number of tracks. Back to Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School, which is probably eh, the first, second favorite track on the album. It is, uh, you know, we just did uh, Velvet Underground not so long ago, and they're going to come up in a, in a moment uh, again. But uh, in terms of the rawness and directness of these lyrics and how kind of out of step with the time, I mean, Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School is right there. Uh, I like you. You like me. Sorry, but I had to gag you. You look better completely undressed. Sorry, but I had to have you. I mean, it is it is totally lecherous behavior being described in a first-person song uh, from, from Robin Zander combined with um, 
not quite power pop, but there's hand clapping, there's these crunching riffs. It's a great song with these very off lyrics. And then two songs later, uh, again, what might be my favorite song is Oh Candy, which is this very sincere, uh, sober reflection on the suicide of a friend, uh, a friend of the band. Uh, oh Candy, uh, you know, we all liked you except yourself. Uh, at the very end, Oh Candy is a song that has great momentum to it. It starts a little slow, kicks in, and by the time it gets to that 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 coda, the you you know you won't be coming around no more. It really is in high gear, and the very very end, you know, I didn't think you heard a word that I said with that cold close. Uh, on, on the music. It's just a great moment. Uh, oh, Candy's a wonderful song. Jeff mentioned he's a whore. Ballad of TV Violence, I will mention just quickly because originally it was called the Ballad of Richard Speck, which, I mean, you think uh, Daddy should have stayed in high school is bleak. I mean, Richard Speck's a serial killer who who killed and tortured eight nurses in the Chicago area. And uh, that was the original name for this song. And it, it's a it, it, that's that's what it's about. And, and Xander, as, as Chris mentioned, does this great Jekyll and Hyde kind of vocal delivery in the song where he starts kind of sweet and innocent and gets very... Uh, I would say evil, but I mean, very monstrous toward the end of the song, which you, you have to, given the material. And sequenced this way, the very end of the uh, of the album is this door slamming at the end yeah. of the Ballad of TV Violence. It's a great way to uh, to end the album. We should point out, too, as we, as we kind of go through these first albums, um, this didn't sell at all. <laughs> there, were, there were no singles, and the and the album itself didn't even crack the top two hundred. So for all the 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 effort that went into to getting them to epic, and 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 the retrospectives now that saying how great of an album it is and how influential it was, nobody bought it at the time, and that would kind of be the story of the first few albums, in fact, uh, including uh, the next one, which is in color and released only about seven months after Cheap Trick. Uh, New producer, Tom Werman, brought in, and his job was to uh, give the song some shine, make it a little less raw, uh, a little less uh, dark in terms of the musical direction, but the lyrics uh, on In Color also are a little less dark as well. The band famously did not like the final product all that much. Uh, they, they went and re-recorded the album with Steve Albini in the 1990s, uh, and there's a couple songs where I think especially the, the production hurts. But overall, guys, and I'll throw it out to, to, to you, uh, I, I actually think the production's just fine for the most part on In Color. It's a great album. I don't really know what the problem they have with the production on this album is at all. I think the, the, the problems with this album, the very few problems with this album, because it's a great record. 
are, are with the creative decisions that they made, the arrangement decisions they made. Of course, the most obvious one, and yeah, I'm going to steal everyone else's thunder by, by, by jumping in to steal this one, <laughs> is uh, the most famous song they ever did, I Want You to Want Me. <clears throat> we all know it from that live version at Budokan. Boy, is it a whiplash hangover experience when you finally go back to hear the original studio version, which sounds like junk. I can't even understand how a song that was so great, as is the essence of fantastic power pop, uh, could sound so clunky in the <laughs> original recording. And we were talking about this in our pre-show, and uh, you guys were objecting to the guitars. I kind of like the guitars. They almost have like a weird country attack to them. They're 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 hard rock pop guitars but there's something about the inflections on them that almost feels like a little hockey tonk i don't mind that it almost feels like here's an interesting alternate version but what really fails on it is uh bunny carlos his drumming on that song seems so hesitant like he doesn't know how to approach this thing he doesn't know the way to play the song and so it's just like kind of like halting shuffle thing it's nothing like that assured like boom 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 uh, <laughs> rhythm that you get on the live version it's kind of like this more slow hesitant shuffle beat and again you take a great song and you make it uh, completely second rate That is more or less the sum total of my criticisms of In Color because I think everything else on this record is great. The one that I, in particular, just absolutely adore, the one that immediately stood out to me as the best is Downed. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the finest songs Cheap Trick ever wrote or ever recorded. Uh, again, to me, it goes back to the same kind of template, the mold established by Taxman, Mr. Thief. They're not the same songs by any means, but they're the same kind of, you know, it starts off with a really convincing hard rock riff, but then it just develops into this much more kind of thoughtful, you know, you know I don't want to say pop because I overuse that term, especially when talking about cheap trick, but it has this incredibly melodic and harmonically satisfying groove and development. It gets into almost you know epic spaces, but it does it only in four minutes. This is not like some sort of nine-minute freak-out. They do a couple of those later that I think are actually pretty good. They compress it all into four minutes. Downed is the best song on In Color. But I really don't have 
very much to criticize about anything else in this album. You know, Clock Strikes 10, Come On, Come On, So Good to See You is a fantastic, maybe the best way they ever closed any of their, their classic era albums. This is there's just a lot to love on this record. This is a great batch of songs, and they would live off Rick Nielsen's uh, initial batch of songs. No sophomore slumps, because Rick had so many songs written from, from his initial songwriting. This album in particular, because of the way Werman produced it, uh, you really hear how the band interplays with each other, and it's special. It's, it's it's pretty unique to Cheap Trick. So like Big Eyes, where Buddy Carlos sets the pace on drums. He's he's often thrust into a lead role. The drums are almost a lead instrument in many of Cheap Trick's songs. Rick Nielsen then kind of plays a, a rhythm part. Tom Peterson, instead of just playing a rhythm bass, is almost filling in like a lead guitarist would uh, on the bass. And, and the way that that works is so interesting. You hear it on Big Eyes, you hear it on Your All Talk, where you get this real sparse groove from Rick on the guitar. Tom's bass is filling in all over the place. Uh, and, of course, that that monster drum beat from, from Bun. Uh Southern Girls, by the way, not Southern uh, U.S. Girls. This was a song about Southern Canadian girls from a from a tour of Southern Canada that they wanted to pay homage to, but Southern uh, Can- Canadian girls didn't roll off the tongue, so they left that out. That's just such a great, simple, power-pop song. Uh, Bun just has such a great groove, setting the tone, huge Nielsen riffs, uh, and, and those riffs just kind of dance around Robin Zander's vocals, and Robin gives this great lusty delivery. There's hand claps, there's piano, there's a double-time bridge, which works fantastic. Southern Girls is a great song. And uh, Jeff mentioned, it's my favorite song on the album. It's so good to see you, the, the end of the album. I just adore So Good to See You. It starts with a patented bun drum roll snapped off to start. The chorus first before the verse, you notice that a lot on, on a lot of Cheap Trick song. The chorus goes right uh, at the front of the song. Xander's voice climbing in in the chorus, fantastic. And that little that little uh, that little guitar progression, the diddly, 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 ding, before the chorus is just super. The way that Rick also can change his tone in a in a heartbeat, in mere seconds, from being something very melodic to something very dirty and 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 almost mean in parts of the of the chorus is fantastic. And the way it closes, as Jeff mentioned, with you know with Xander holding that last note and the band kicks in. So good to see you. It's a great great way to end a fantastic album in color. I think that ending is uh, just another example of how much, how different this is from their first album, because we were talking about a serial killer screaming at the right, end of the right. first album. <laughs> and now we've got these beautiful harmonies 
uh, and, a, and just a great power pop melody closing out the second album. Um, so good to see you is, I mean, yeah, just not my favorite song on the album, but those, those harmonies at the end, just absolutely beautiful. Um, and they have so many songs with beautiful vocals like that. Uh, you guys mentioned downed. That's really the only dark song on this album. Everything else is so upbeat, so much fun. Um, uh, I like I like this album very much. I do have to say that I think you know I think five of these songs are also on at Budokan, and I think at Budokan's versions are improvements of maybe all of them. I think Come On, Come On may be the exception, um, but Southern Girls. Uh, that's uh, I I think that's the perfect song. It's the perfect power pop song. Anyway, uh, you really see him. I this may be the first song where Nielsen relies really on power chords. The guitar playing is mm -hmm. really simple, really straightforward. Um, yeah, Bunny's, as you said, Scott, Bunny's drumming is, is fantastic, start to finish. Um, and I talked to a friend in high school when I was trying to get other people to like Cheap Trick, and he couldn't get over Xander's voice. He, he said it was too whiny. <laughs> and I see his point. And including in Southern Girls, the chorus is Southern Girls. It's really, I can see how that's not everybody's cup of tea, but I love it in this song. It's, it's just fantastic. did not know that it was a boot Canadian girls. That's interesting. Yes. <laughs> and then come on, come on. Uh, again, a pretty simple song, but it's so much fun. It's, it's an exciting, quick song. And I think it's Peterson who's coming in with these. Yeah. 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 During the chorus. It's just so frenetic and silly and fun. Uh, those, those two songs in particular really carry the album for me. And that leads us to another album uh, just a few months later. They were just reeling off albums. And again, uh, real quickly, In Color didn't sell much either. Number 73 on the charts, but it was big in Japan. And uh, we'll come back to that point in, in just a little bit. Heaven Tonight, uh, from April of 1978. This, uh, an attempt to, uh, uh, to mash together uh, the, the first two album styles. The rawness, the power of Cheap Trick, uh, and uh, some of the sweet pop notes from In Color and done pretty darn well. I, I I go back and forth with what's my favorite Cheap Trick album, but it's hard to say it's not uh, Heaven Tonight. Tom Peterson debuts his 12-string bass on this album. Uh, that, that kind of wicked sense of humor returns a little more in force than I think it did In Color. Keyboardist on board, strings, a little more layered guitars. Uh, by the way, do you guys know why they're in uh, why they're in uh, a bathroom on the cover of Heaven Tonight? No, tell me. I will tell you. The record label insisted that this album be called American Standard, and so ah. they were going to make a play on the American Standard line of bathroom faucets and and take the uh, 
cover in in the in the bathroom and the band prevailed upon the the record label to let them call it something else they said fine as long as you call it a song a non-single on the album and they said okay we'll do heaven tonight so they're actually in the bathroom because that it was originally going to be called american standard and now you know the you rest know, of I, the story i, I, I kind of asked myself like why is the label getting so involved with <laughs> this these sort of like bizarre hands-on demands and then the thing that you realize is that these early albums um as good as they are had no chart success at all mm-hmm. that's the that thing that i guess we hadn't mentioned is that cheap shirt didn't exist as like a, a a popular proposition in the minds of america until budokan right. which ironically of course was a was a, you know recorded exclusively for the japanese market um but up until that point they were just a critic's darling that all oh, they were putting on all these albums getting really great notices but for whatever reason i don't know maybe they weren't bribing the right you know, record jobbers to like play their <laughs> stuff on the radio, or, or maybe they were just a little bit too weird. Um, but they were not having any kind of commercial success. Uh, and I find that completely inexplicable when I listened to this album. So, like, you know, again, as I said before, I was just starting through these records, listened first to Cheap Trick, then to In Color. I thought, well, these are, these are really good. These are really solid. But I could say, well, I could pick out a flaw here. I could pick out a flaw there. You know, they're not perfect. You know, maybe this is one of those those bands that the fans really love, but they overrate. And then I hit Heaven Tonight, and I was honestly blown the heck away. This is uh, a pretty much perfect album. I don't think there's a single bad song on this record. I don't think there's a single song on this record that makes me even feel like, oh, well, you know, that's significantly weaker than you. I can do that on Born to Run, by the way, an album cover <laughs> they would parody a little later on in their career. Yeah. I can say on Born to Run, well, you know, Night, that's not a very good song. Who really cares about that? Um, I think every song on Heaven Tonight is fantastic. And, of course, everyone's going to want to talk about this, but I actually would just like to say something about the title track, which is, you know, Heaven Tonight. Uh, and I was again, this is one of these things that we were discussing earlier today. I'm I'm so impressed up about how that song throws you for a loop lyrically. You know, y- y- you think it's going to be with the title Heaven Tonight. You think it's going to be another one of these sort of rock cliches. And in fact, you know, he, Xander sings, you know, would you like to go to heaven tonight? Would you like to go to heaven tonight? And you think, well, okay, this is just like, you know, a come on to a girl. It's going to be, I'm going to show you what heaven is like with my amazing sexual prowess. And then you realize as the music gets more and more tortured and crabbed, and then all of a sudden it sounds like haunted house music. It sounds really dark and really strange and really upsetting, but beautiful, beautiful music. Down the line, couldn't get much, couldn't get much higher if you tried. And then you realize this is a song about a terrible bad trip you know doing too many drugs getting too high like the stevie wonder song and then they finally you know at the end they reveal you can never come down you can never come down you've never been this high before you can never come down and you realize this isn't a dream you're not going to heaven tonight this is a nightmare i am just again i will always tip my cap to those songs and those bands that 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 revert your that invert your expectations, that set you up to think it's going one way and then pull a complete U-turn on you. That's one of the reasons I love that song so much.
find similar stuff all over this album i love this album this album is one of the great discoveries that i've had on this entire series of episodes we've done throughout the podcast frankly i'm that impressed with it chris go ahead uh yeah i agree with uh with heaven tonight uh the song and 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 the album i mean i think that overall the album doesn't have the high points that in color does but it's it's more consistent just all around better nonsense uh, surrender yeah <laughs> yeah so surrender obviously um yeah what am i talking about so the first track i i almost felt like we shouldn't talk about surrender because i i assume everybody has a strong opinion about it but um i mean surrender is probably their is probably their best song best known song um as it should be and uh that's it's a twisted song i mean it's, it's a weird song yep. about uh about parents um and about from what from what i can gather you know it's it's uh advice about how to handle parents how to deal with them um and treat them like kids what's that (laughs) treat them like kids kids. yeah exactly by the end of the song you know they're making out on the sofa to his kiss records because he he gets them out but still um and the you know the lyrics the, the the chorus um you know surrender surrender but don't give yourself away just kind of uh, how to negotiate life growing up. It's, it, you know, it's a great adolescence or teenage song. Um, but you don't need to know that to love it because his voice is so powerful in it. Um, again, my friend complained about the whining, but I think it's fantastic in this song. Um, and then the, the Budokan version is good too, but I think this is an instance where the, the yes. studio version may be better than the yes. Budokan version. Um, and they, they would, they would come back to surrender uh, when they did the theme song for that '70s show, maybe maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But they'll they'll ha- um, it's not surrender, but they bring some surrender into it. Um, you know, I think that this has to be it's a it's a great anthem. It's a great '70s anthem. I think I may be going overboard here, but I think you have to consider this one of the best American rock songs of the no, '70s. I think up there with anything or late '70s at least up there than anything Aerosmith did. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely a standout of the album and great first track. is another one of my favorites here that's that's a cover of the move of a moves of a song by the move again uh, roy wood and jeff lynn's uh band um and it's just again it's better than the original it's louder it it thumps more it's got more boogie to it um and it also they also uh, do this neat thing where they bring in a bass solo from another song uh, by the move called brontosaurus mm-hmm. towards the end of the 
song, there's this bass solo that goes do, 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 do. Um, and that's not from the from the original move song. They bring in another move song. So I like I like that little Easter egg there, that moment of discovery. <laughs> um, and I know you guys, I think you guys are big fans of Al Theater Zane. Um, they have, there are just a couple of really dumb rockers on this song, Stiff Competition and Al Theater Zane. And uh, for some people, the comparison between In Color and Heaven Tonight comes down to what you think of Stiff Competition and Al Theater Zane. And if they're, if they're too dumb for you, if they're too just kind of straight ahead, late 70s rock, then you're going to prefer In Color. But if you like them and you, and you like how rough they are, um, how much uh, Xander yells in them, then you're going to like this album more. Um, and I think that these, these songs might put, put this album over the edge for me, uh, especially Al Feeder Zane. It's just a really a kick-butt song. Everybody's uh, – I mean, you could isolate any instrument or just Robin's vocals and just be carried away with it. So much fun. Robin's good and whiny um, with plenty of yelling thrown in for good measure. And the bass-heavy guitars really drive the song, as they do in so many of their best ones. Yeah. Uh- on surrender, just very quickly, you were absolutely right. I mean, in the in a in a draft of classic rock songs, surrender is a first round draft pick. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's anthemic. It, those key changes throughout it, keep it interesting and keep it going together. Right up to the very end, when you know instead of uh, you know you've got uh, Tommy's all right, Bunny's all right, Robin's all right, Rick's all right, we're all all right. It's you know sing together, shout yeah. together. It's just a, a fantastic, fantastic song. And yes, I think one of the best American classic rock songs uh, from that era, definitely. Off Weeder saying uh, to me is one of Robin Zander's best vocal performances. He is going all out uh, to sell this song. And by the time we get to the end with, you know, bye-bye, so long, farewell, sayonara, uh, and that screaming of, 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 of Robin Zander makes off eaters. And, and, and I am not, uh, it is not too dumb for me to like stiff, stiff, stiff competition uh, as well, which I guess I can say this. Uh, Rick Nielsen once described as him writing it, uh, envisioning a bunch of penises talking to each other. That is how he described writing the song Stiff Competition with these giant hammering power chords, Xander screaming like Roger Daltrey and won't get fooled again. Uh, and this this very brief, uh, pretty acoustic bridge toward the center that, that, that runs right into a pulverizing guitar riff from, from Rick Nielsen. Double uh, triple, uh, uh, you know, ways of looking at, at lyrics. Uh, it's a dumb, loud, fantastic song. And again, the last song on the album, How Are You, is one of my favorites. Again, is rolling piano chords that very much remind me of what Norman was going for on the, uh, uh, the in-color version of I Want You to Want Me. But I think it works out much, much better here. A bouncy piano, the hey, hey, it's all right. Come on, come on, been working all night, um, working all day. And um, 
uh, How Are You is a great way to close the album. This, again, start to finish, even the lesser song, like Taking Me Back is all right. Uh, it's good, but there, there's there's a portion of that uh, song that kind of takes it to a different level toward yeah. the middle there with some of the strings and the, and, and the synths uh, yeah. in there. So start to finish, it's, it's a nearly, nearly flawless album. Hey, can I say uh, two more things? First, Taking Me Back, I totally agree uh, about the synth there. That just brings this the song to another level and the chorus is great too uh robin's voice with the uh with the ago i really like like how he uh how he presents that part yep. and i was going to call stiff competition cock rock um but <laughs> refrained from it but now that i see i should have it would have been very accurate you would have been so. dead on absolutely yeah. <laughs> um and eau claire is the the, the very last song right. i yes. guess it wasn't credited in the, when it was originally released but eau claire is uh, not about a girl named claire this may be Wisconsin myth, but I understand that it's about Eau Claire, Wisconsin, uh, which they would often uh, hit during their tours. Yep. Yeah. And there'd be a, there's a song on uh, Rockford that's also called Eau Claire in another that's homage right. to uh, to the city in Wisconsin. Uh, so Evan, Evan tonight didn't sell either. Um, but there was this thing happening over in Japan where they, uh, they in color did sell, Heaven Tonight did sell, and, and they went and recorded... Uh, a live show at Budokan. You might have heard some before, songs. Before, before yes. we even start discussing it, it, at Budokan, is this the beginning of the entire big in Japan trope? <laughs> I was going to ask that. It must be. As far as I, I know, be, yes. Be, I mean, it's got to be because, you know, like Deep Purple, of course, did their, their, their live in Japan thing, but they were still big before that happened. You know, Cheap Trick had no success anywhere in the world except Japan, and then they went to Japan, and then they became world famous. This has to be where the whole Big in Japan <laughs> thing came from, right? I think so. And, it's... And, 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 when, and how great for that, too, because this is what they came up with. Yeah, I mean, a 10-song live album, there was more that, that would then be released uh, uh, far, far into the future. But at Budokan was, was, was huge in Japan. They started getting uh, imports coming into the U.S., and because it was Im- because there were imports, Cheap Trick was only making half of what they would make on an uh, actual American release. So they told the record label, "Forget that. Release the freaking album in the U.S." And they did, and it sold like crazy. Uh, I think two or three million uh, sales in the U.S. Uh, hit singles. I want you to want me. I will say a few quick things and then throw it over to you guys. Uh, as as I think we all have mentioned, there are songs on at Budokan that sound better in in a live version, especially from In Color. I want you to want me clearly is better at Budokan. I think Clock Strikes Ten, which is okay uh, on the album, really comes alive uh, on at Budokan. It's one of my favorite moments uh, of the album. And then another Cheap Trick just chooses excellent covers through a career i mean uniformly great cover choices and uh, this one ain't that a shame which also would be a, a single release from the album's fantastic uh when we were in rockford we would celebrate bunny carlos's birthday every single year by playing the first uh, two and a half minutes or so of the live version of uh, ain't that a shame from at budokan where he just smokes on uh, the drum kit uh it's a great live album as far as live albums go you guys know i'm not generally a live album fan but this is just, you know, it's 10 songs. It improves generally on, uh, on, the, uh, on the album versions. And it, it's, a great, it's a great reflection of what they were doing at that time. Yeah, so... I, sorry, Jeff. No, no, you um, go first. I think, uh, obviously, I Want You to Want Me is so much better. And I didn't talk about the in-color version. Uh, I know, Jeff, you like those guitars. 
the guitars in the studio version sound like a TV theme song guitar. <laughs> um, but when it's live, I mean, they just get it right. And the, you know, they, they go, they go power pop with it. Um, and, uh, the Beastie Boys cover. They sampled either "I Want You to Want Me," like some of some of the the conversation with the crowd. I think the part where, uh, yeah, when they introduced "Surrender" on at Budokan, uh, the Beastie Boys sampled the part. This is the first song on our new album. I, so much of this album is just the interaction between them and the audience. All yeah, these screaming yeah. girls treating them like the Beatles, and I have no idea if they understand a word the band is saying but I love it. Um, I love that interaction. It, it happens occasionally over the course of the album. Um, there's a, the third track on this album, uh, Look Out, is they recorded, I think, for their first album, but it yes. wasn't on it for whatever reason. Yep. That, that's a great, a great track on this album. Um, and then another song here that hadn't yet been released when, when At Budokan came out is uh, Need Your Love. That would come out on Heaven Tonight. And I love this version of it. Um, I guess it doesn't differ that much, but this is the version I know best. And I, it just seems like the the T Rex elements of this song, the, the the and the way the bass propels things through, is uh, a lot of fun. I, when I this was I mentioned before, I would listen to this album whenever I drove from Madison to Rockford, and I would just. Um, Listen to Need Your Love and Ain't That a Shame, tracks uh, five and six, again and again and again. They're, they're really long rockers, um, and those can be boring, but they're never boring with Cheap Trick uh, every, because everybody is so good and they're, they just interact so well with each other. That's that's what drives that Budokan. Even those really long songs, they don't they don't feel long, and they uh, they are a lot of fun. Unlike Scott, I am a connoisseur of live albums. <laughs> In fact, some some of my all time favorite bands I prefer primarily for their live work. So, like you know, you talk about the Grateful Dead or or King Crimson for that matter. I I really go to the, their live material over anything that they ever did in the studio. So, uh, you know, coming as I, I took I, I took my time in the barrel today on Twitter when I announced that, yeah, I'm the guy who claims to know a lot about rock music. And I just heard Cheap Trick at Budokan this week for the first time ever. Uh, and uh, I got ratioed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so people were stunned at my ignorance. Um, and that's fair because it's actually kind of shocking that I had really other than, of course, I want you to want me. I had not heard this album before. It's just too 
early in my listening to this record to sort of rank it in any definitive way among what I consider to be like the top live albums of all time. You know, Live at Leeds is kind of by The Who is my gold standard, you know, and then I have like USA by King Crimson or I have Live Dead or Europe 72 by The Dead. You know, is it up there? I don't know. Um, but my God, it is a magnificent record. That much I can tell you for sure. And what the thing that I like so much about it is that it, it proves sort of the muscularity of the durability of a band. So to me, the, you know, there are two ways to prove that you're a great band. You can be a great studio band, and then you can be a great live band. There are lots of groups that were great studio bands that were not great live bands. That the Beach Boys really never did anything live that you'd ever want to worry about hearing, mm -hmm. although they were one of the quintessential studio acts of all time. XTC being another great example that we mentioned earlier in the show. Then there are great live bands. The Grateful Dead is the quintessential example. Terrible in the studio. Cheap Trick were both great in the studio, and this album proves that they were a band fantastic live act i think everyone talks about i want you to want me but it's ain't that a shame yeah. that blows me man I am, I am completely in scott's corner about that that is just an amazing cover that is an amazing song and i and i i think surrender is you know, maybe not quite as good as the studio version but it's close <laughs> um big eyes i i didn't like it as much when i heard it on in color and then i heard it on at budokan and it made sense made so much sense and it's just such a great you know like thing where they start with a song called hello there mm -hmm. you know hello there you know <laughs> it's a great way to open an album i don't even know if it opened the original concert but i mean it should have and then it ends with clock strikes 10 which has that you know that little you know the ding dong clock thing running throughout a motif that runs throughout the song this is a fantastic live album and i i've never heard the the extended version, you know, the, the they, they released like a follow up Budokan 2, which right. is just like the, the roots of the stuff that wasn't on the album. Has some songs that I really like on it, like Stiff Competition and Downed um, and, you know, Yellow Kitties. I've never heard it. I'm afraid to hear it. I'm afraid to hear the quote complete concert track listing because the, the original stripped down pure version is so great that I feel like adding anything to it would, would kind of would, would ruin the purity of that record. I don't think it needs another second on it. And it is a fantastic live record. You're going to ask me like four months from now, after I've listened to it a hundred times where it ranks in the hierarchy of the great live albums of all time. I'm not going to know until that point. But what I know now is that, yeah, I can't believe it took me 38 years of my life to listen to this. this Scott, or sorry, Jeff, um, what you said about the the full ver the fuller uh, versions of the album, I've been avoiding those forever. I think it first came out in the early '90s. I remember seeing it in the Columbia House Music Guide, and uh -huh. I was deliberating, hmm, do I get that? And I just I'm not going to get it because I don't want it 
to ruin it. One of the reasons <laughs> this CD is so great is that it's concise. Yeah, it's yep. it's, it's compact and powerful. Um, and you mentioned the opening track, "Hello There's Hello There, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to rock? Right. So it sounds so stupid. I mean, it's just a generic opening, but it works somehow. And I think it's because Cheap Trick doesn't take themselves too seriously. That's why the the longer songs are never too ponderous, or they they never they never drag. There's, uh, there's none of the spinal tap pomposity. Exactly. To, yeah, right. exactly. Well, and, and Hello There works because it was born of necessity. They're playing in the dives around the Midwest. They had they would often have no sound check. So they wrote Hello There to to to, to sound check. It, it's because it's yeah. Rick and then it's Bun and then it's Tom and then it's Robin. So they could they could sound check as they were playing 90 seconds of Hello There and be ready for the second song. So it was both it's both a good song and provides a needed uh, task when you're playing at a venue that, it, that, that does not allow you to sound check. So it works yeah. well. The, uh, but the thing, Chris, you say about conciseness, I keep coming back to this. Like the, I, I, when I look at an album, especially one that I encounter for the first time, one of the first things I look at is what is the length? And this is something I used to not appreciate. I'm like, oh, 78 minutes on one CD? Oh, that's more value for the money. Like, man, man, the older you get and the less time you have, you know, you have a job, you have responsibilities, you have a wife, you're going to have kids, I'm going to have kids soon. You realize, you know what, there's just something about a good 33-minute record. Yes. Yeah, that's what I want. So this is this is actually, actually more like 40 minutes, but yes, you're right. I don't want to add to anything like this. I don't think there's anything missing from it, and I completely agree with you, as I said, about like, uh, why, why mess with perfection? Uh, one other real quick. I will always think of At Budokan with this memory. Uh, Cheap Trick would often play uh, this festival in Rockford called On the Waterfront, which is uh, on the waterfront, the Rock River in Rockford. And one of the years I was out there, uh, while they were playing, I was working on a parking lot, parking cars. Um, and we couldn't hear the show, but my friend had brought the, his uh, At Budokan CD, and we just listened to it on repeat all night long. It was our own private <laughs> live Cheap Trick show in the parking lot near On the Waterfront. <laughs> this is Political Beats. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Christopher Scalia. Find them on Twitter at CJ Scalia. Co-editor of Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived, uh, the collection of his late father's speeches. We are talking about Cheap Trick. The next album, Dream Police, actually was completed before At Budokan was released in the U.S., but then that went nuts, so the label held on to it for a while, released in the uh, the fall of 79, their highest charting uh, uh, studio album, yes, even higher than Lap of Luxury, which would have a number one song on it. We go to number six. This is, an, I mean, a broken record, guys. This is a fantastic album from start to finish. There's not one song I don't like on this record. The songwriting gets a little more complex. Orchestration begins to, to seep into more of these songs. Uh, Dream Police, the title track, the first track on the album... Uh, is fantastic. Robin Zander's cute, then menacing vocals through it. Bun's drums are fantastic, especially during that that instrumental build up to the final chorus when the riff just gets blown off the song. Fabulous. I will let Jeff talk about Way of the World, though it is one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs. It's one he has found in recent days and loves, so I'll, I'll hold that for him. Gonna raise hell. I, I think perhaps some people's love or, or dislike, or at least love or, or like, of Dream Police might hinge on what you think of Gonna Raise Hell. It's about nine and a half minutes long of, uh, of, of, of beginning with this very menacing low bass line from Tom Peterson. 
which is which sets it so well. It's a heavy jam, and then kind of does get into the a, almost a disco beat at times in it. So, what you think of the album might hinge on what you think of "Gonna Raise Hell." I mm-hmm. love it. When I worked at my college radio station, a guy would call me like once a week and say, "You got to play "Gonna Raise Hell," and I would say, "I can't. It's not. We're not authorized to play. It's not on a list of songs we can play." And, and finally. I played it for him. Oh, you're so corporate. I know. God. I played it for him, and I'm like, oh, well, that's why you wanted me to play that song, because it's freaking awesome. Uh, uh, the beat that Bunny lays down is fantastic, but Tom Warman did not think it was thumpy enough. The snare drum was not thick enough. So if you listen to Gonna Raise Hell, not all the time, but I think during the, the chorus and some of the instrumental uh, portions, it's actually the sound of Tom Warman smacking two pieces of wood together to thicken up the snare drum sound on Gonna and Raise Hell. And it works! Absolutely! It that, works! That's one of my favorites uh, on the album. Uh, I will quickly say Voices is also good, but Voices, in my mind, everything is just an excuse to get to that gorgeous, gorgeous bridge with uh, Robin's voice layered on like seven or eight times. That's just a fantastic portion of the song. And the one song that Tom Peterson sings, I Know What I Want. That's a song that was specifically written for Tom. Tom would do uh, Velvet Underground covers in the early days of Cheap Trick to give Robin a rest. He would do uh, Waiting for the Man. I think he would do Heroin. And they finally wanted to give him a song, their own song he could sing. So that was written very much to have a Velvet Underground type feel to it. Uh, And Tom still sings. Actually, uh, on the current tour, he's flipping off between doing I Know What I Want and also doing Waiting for the Man from from Velvet Underground show by show on the current tour. Uh, But yeah, I mean, Dream Police, again, catch me on the right day. I'm going to tell you it's my favorite Cheap Trick album. It's fantastic. Chris, you go first. This is really just a a fantastic album. There is no dead weight on this album. Um, You know, I one of my lesser uh, favorites on this album is actually the title track. Uh, I like it. I like the kind of the paranoid power pop, um, but I don't like all of the. And there's a little too much, uh, a little too much to it. I think I'm not convinced the strings work. Um, It's it's maybe a little bit. too baroque for me. I, I wonder if it would have been better stripped down. Um, on the other hand, "Gonna Raise Hell" that is definitely not stripped down. Uh, the disco strings towards the end are risky, but uh, and maybe if another band added those, I wouldn't like it. But I love that song as well. Um, this album has some uh, interesting pop cultural staying power. "Gonna Raise Hell" was on an episode of Freaks and Geeks, a Halloween episode, the first season. "Voices" was on an episode of How I Met Your Mother, where the main character, Ted, sings it to a girl named Robin, ironically enough. And then um, Dream Police, there, it was on, on a commercial a few years ago, Super Bowl commercial, Volkswagen, yeah. they changed the lyrics to The Green Police. <laughs> um, uh, I remember both of these. 
First of all, Freaks and Geeks is one of uh, Noel and I's favorite show. Yeah. <laughs> and so I remember that, and then I also remember Green Police, which is like a hugely controversial yeah. thing. Right. It was one of these things that I remember only because I never recognized the song at that time, and then I came back and I was like, oh, I remember people freaking out about that for no good reason whatsoever. Um, <laughs> so dumb. My, my favorite on this album is one of the the less uh, poppy songs, track three, the house is rocking, and then parenthetically with domestic problems. It's a hard rock song, um, and it kind of in the vein of their early songs. It's it's weird. It's you know it's about pretty dark subject matter about you know domestic disturbances. I I I, I guess parents fighting the this, uh, but it's fun despite the from what I from what I can gather that it. Um, the singer is a kid who has to go home and he's going to see his parents fighting there and he doesn't want to, but he has to go home. But, uh, it's fun. Robin's voice, despite the subject matter, um, his voice, uh, is, it's kind of like an angry sing-along song yeah. where yeah. Robin's yelling, uh, his kind of great dulture yell. And then the rest of the band is going, Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, it's it's a lot of fun, and then it opens with just a great guitar riff, and the chorus, or I guess it's the bridge, has another another Beatles reference to "She's So Heavy." They kind of work in the heavy, heavy part. Um, heavy, yeah. heavy trouble is the way they the, the direction they take it. So an, another little Easter egg there. I love that song, um, and I think it's one of their more underrated ones. <laughs> There's another long one at the end to close out the album. I, I mentioned this in relation to uh, at Budokan, Need Your Love. It's a long jam on this one, too. Um, what I really like about this one is that Xander is doing something really weird with his vocals. He's almost doing like an Aaron Neville uh, in, uh, vibrato with it, um, and I'm not going to even try to imitate it. Uh, but it's this really weird vocal move that I think works uh, works nicely with this song. Um Again, two long songs on this album, Gonna Raise Hell and Need Your Love, but they're never boring. You guys talked about Oasis um, a while ago. I'm a huge Oasis fan. Um, you talked about um, Be Here Be Now and yeah. how those, lo those long songs just dragged and got so boring like all around the world um, because there were, no, <laughs> there were no changes in those songs. Um, but Cheap Trick long songs go in really interesting directions. Um, so they're always fun to listen to. They're always pretty exciting. Well, this is the danger of, of foolishly letting Chris speak before me because you know, the jerks know everything I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I, um, I think one of the best things on this, on this album is the house is rocking. By the way, I'm going to say the dream police is, I, I'm, 
yeah, I'm going to reveal my hand right now and say this is the, my second favorite Cheap Trick album. And I've heard like 16 of them at this point. Uh, I, I think this one is just hugely impressive. All the stuff that's already been said, both by Chris and by Scott, about uh, the, the long songs, Gonna Raise Hell in particular, that's nine and a half minutes long. It doesn't get boring for one second. It always is developing. It's always like, you know, like, like hammering home on these incredibly memorable riffs. And uh, the other thing I want to point out is that this is an album where they start bringing in strings. Yeah. They start bringing in orchestration. They start getting a little bit pretentious, you might say. But it doesn't feel pretentious. There's nothing about this that feels like a, sort of a ham-handed you know, move made out of uncertainty. Oh, is this where we do our art move? You know, this is this is the album that makes me understand why they could go like cover Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band in like Vegas. You know, they did like 50 shows or something like that, you know, from start to finish and do a creditable job of it because they actually know how to work in the dynamics on these things. Um, but I want to get back to The House is Rockin', which, again, you know, I've, I've emphasized this so many times. You take that title, The House is Rockin'. Well, that sounds like your standard good time, fun time, party song. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it, it's with domestic violence. It's a very, very weird song about how, yeah, you, know, you, you can't stop the fighting. You know, you, you, your parents are, are, are freaking out. You know, I said, I, I know my world's in a spin he says she said it's bad for the children. He went and bought a gun. I mean, it's just really, really messed up stuff. But also, it didn't feel like cheap or exploitative. Like, I, I know what that feels like. I, 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 I've been in those situations, and I know friends who have been in those situations as well. So it, it was, it was, uh, it took a, a subject that could have been made tawdry or silly, and actually treated it with respect while still doing the cheap trick move of throwing you off your game by, by setting it up in a completely different direction. Mm -hmm. The other one, I, you know, Voices. I know Scott likes Voices. I don't. I think it's actually the weakest song on the album. Uh, I, I don't even much care for that middle eight that he likes so much, but I do absolutely love Way of the World, and this might be one of my top five songs at the end of the show today. I think that, the, you know, again, overused, beaten to death phrase in this show, power pop. That is the quintessence of power pop. They, they in some ways sounded as nerdy as they look on the cover of this record. By the way, this is one of the stupidest and silliest Cheap Trick covers of all time where you have them all dressed up like uh, police except they're wearing white. And uh, boy, God, Bunny Carlos, you know, again, you know, looking like <laughs> the, the accountant of the band. He almost looks like a member of the village people. He's almost got a butch thing going on there. And I, I just love it so much because it's, it's so just pricelessly lame. But you know, Rick Nielsen holding a chainsaw over a mannequin. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> what is happening? Yes, yes, and then Peterson's got the gun in his hand, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, so silly. And then, yeah, yeah, and then Buddy has like, he has a bandolero of bullets. Just yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's the stupidest thing you've ever seen. But again, these people are not taking themselves seriously. I want to get back to the way of the world. I love the way that song begins and it develops that, that final part where it's a world goes round, life yeah. goes on and on and on. That whole fade out, it is um, one of the most transcendent pop moments of their entire career. Uh, and I, I think that this is entirely, as an album, the most transcendent pop moment of Cheap Trick's entire career. This is, they always characterize it as the complex one, the one where they kind of like start stretching out. I don't buy that. I, and I, I think actually that the next one they did might be even a little weirder. But I think this, and you know, this one, you know, taken with Heaven Tonight. Again, these are albums that I'm just sort of sitting here thinking, like, I can feel kind of like a putz for not having ever known about these up until this point. <laughs> oh, and and uh, the next one, as uh, as Jeff mentioned, all shook up uh, would be about a year later in 1980. And and look, I, I have to like offer apologies on on all shook up because I'm, I'm certain I have bad mouthed it previously. I did in my initial email to Jeff when I was trying to give him the 411 on what was up with Cheap Trick, and I said, you know, all shook up is not great. It's uh, George Martin produces, and it's uh, it's just not a great album. I don't know if my opinion has uh, has changed so dramatically on an album that I had already been familiar with. Uh, until all, uh, you know, had my opinion shifted more than what all shook up. This is not on the level of the classic four studio albums we just discussed. Clearly, it is still a very good cheap trick album. Uh, Tom Peterson was here for part of the recording. He would leave to go do an album with his wife and was gone for most of the eighties. He played in some songs. Rick played bass on on a bunch of these songs. There's some really good stuff here, guys. Uh, Stop This Game is an outstanding lead track. Uh, this out-of-control relationship. Um, and I, I love the turn of a phrase. It was Stop This Game, or, um, or I, can't, I Can't Stop the Music, I Could Stop It Before. Like this realization that mm-hmm. things are just spiraling out of control. It's a great song. It's got the kind of McCart- McCartney-esque uh, uh, synth orchestral punches uh, during the song. It reminds me a little bit of Live and Let Die in that way from from McCartney. This game's great. The next two tracks just got back. Baby Loves to Rock. Kind of this almost like a 50s, 60s garage rock throwback. Rick's guitar is just awesomely loud in those songs. Bun is fantastic on Just Got Back. It's a total Bun track. And the two two other ones I want to mention, Can't Stop It But I'm Gonna Try. (laughs) That is a great freaking song. Bun's got these just ridiculous fills throughout Can't Stop It But I'm Gonna Try. Uh, 
Xander has perhaps his, one of his most Robert Plantish moments. There's this throwaway just before the chorus where uh, Robin goes, and that's why I say, and it's just, it sounds exactly like Robert Plant. Uh, great song. And I don't know where you guys stand on High Priest of Rhythmic Noise. It has this, this like vocoder, vocal. I'm a fan. I, okay. I like it. Good. I like it. I think it, it sounds, it reminds me a lot of uh, a lot of later 80s songs that yeah. came out afterwards. But but the way that toward the end, the vocoder and and uh, and Robin Zander's voice begin to intertwine and play with each other at the same time. I dig that so much. Love Comes Tumbling Down is a good track. I was, I'm, look, I was wrong. I was wrong about All Shook Up. This is a very good Cheap Trick album. Apology accepted, Scott. <laughs> First thing I want to say is that I'm going to point out, and it really does need to be pointed out, especially when we get a little later on and we talk about like burnout in the band's career. The first six albums of their career were released in the span calendar-wise of three years. Yep. They did everything from Cheap Trick, the original, to All Shook Up, uh, including Ad Budicon, from 1977 to 1980. That's insane. I mean, you know, you say Rick Nielsen had, had just a wonderful, you know, backlog of songs that he could go through, but nobody has that much of a backlog. <laughs> I mean, we, we always talk about, like, the inevitable sophomore slump or how people avoid that. They went through six records, five studio albums. All of them are either really great or at least passably good, and this one is no exception. Um, I, I'm just so impressed with how they managed to cram so much productivity. And in that sense, you know, you look at like the subsequent like you know four billion other ones they released after this, and you can excuse it. Um, as for this one, I was this is what we were talking about pre-game. I was like saying, you know, I know you don't like all shook up, Scott, but I really like it. I'm surprised that I like it as much. Stop this game, I like World's Greatest Lover. Um, I'm surprised that I like. I feel like I shouldn't like it because it's a bit of a kind of a ballady, kind of a hit single schlocky thing. Mm -hmm. But man, I love Xander's vocal on that. Oh man, he's hitting those high notes on that on that song that I just find to be just so, so appealing. That in, in fact in a strange way, I think, you know, you, you, you can talk about, like, Alfiederson and other things. I, I think that could be my favorite huh. um, uh, Robin Zander uh, vocal performance. Yeah, the world's greatest What is happening? What am I listening to? <laughs> I know. Got off the rails. I know. It's like, it's like saying that your favorite Chicago song is "I Want to Know What Love Is." <laughs> uh, I'm I'm really really sorry. It just is. Uh, you know, there's there's a title that I wish was a better song, which is "I Love You, Honey," but I hate your friends. Yeah. It's a, it's not a bad song. It's just a bit generic. It reminds me of of one of my favorite um, uh, songs by uh, the Specials 
which is what I like most about you is your girlfriend, um, <laughs> which, which is just a great title. And it's pretty it's strong. It's produced by Elvis Costello. It's part of the sort yeah. of the, the Brit ska, you know, late 70s ska, you know, uh, you know, black, you know, Jamaican or reggae boom. Um, but I, I love that title. I wish the song was better. I feel this is an album that kind of falls apart on the second half. But uh, I everything up to High Priest of Rhythm Noise, I think is really, really fantastic. And I didn't understand why Scott was so down on it. And I guess <laughs> Scott doesn't understand either why he was. That's okay. Well, Chris is going to tell us why we're wrong. If it's any consolation, I hate this album. <laughs> and uh, I don't forgive Scott for changing his mind about it. Um, so let's start with Stop This Game. Um it's so close to being good, but what, frust- what frustrates me about this album is just what it could have been. You have George Martin producing. Um, you love the Beatles. Why not rip off the Beatles as you had before and do it even better? But instead, with Stop This Game, they rip off McCartney and Live and Let Die is okay, but yeah. they rip McCartney is good. Come on, he's good. No, I, I like Paul McCartney. Don't get me wrong. I I I enjoyed your your episode about Solo McCartney and Wings McCartney, but they rip off the worst part of Live and Let Die, which is uh, the punchy synth orchestration that you that you referred to, Scott. I hate that. That's the worst, most dated part of Live and Let Die, and they're they're covering it a few years later. Uh, I just I don't understand why they did it. Of course. There, as with so many cheap trick songs, later on when they, when they're bad songs, they're still beautiful moments, and I think that's true of this one too. They're wonderful harmonies towards the end, um, and and Xander's voice is great throughout. I just don't like the song. Um, I do like "Just Got Back." That's got uh, Scott. I've been trying to figure out how to describe that song, but I, I think you described it perfectly. It's kind of '50s, '60s garage rock. It's got a kind of a great boogie to it. Baby loves to rock. It sounds like they're trying to to be early Beatles there, but it just never really picks up. Um, it's early Beatles, but then Xander has kind of a, a Roger Daltrey stutter. Um, yeah, yep. But Xander's voice just seems too polished in this song, and the riffs are too slow. I just find it boring. Um, gosh, I I hate every song you guys said you like. <laughs> <laughs> like uh high priest uh i hate that 80s schlock in that one i don't uh, think well. um and then strong opinions on political beats <laughs> i love you honey but i hate your friends it sounds to me like they're trying to be the faces or rod stewart 
Yeah, I love the faces. I love Rod Stewart. But if you're going to rip off Rod Stewart, don't rip off Hot Legs. And that's what they're doing. <laughs> right. Xander's doing a, I love you, honey. And it makes me cringe. I can't listen to that song. Yeah. Um, and then Huda King is, I mean, I don't like complaining about cultural appropriation, <laughs> but this song is so bad. I want to complain about cultural appropriation. <laughs> I, I and I love Buddy Carlos too, and I, I, I like when they try to give him, um, when, when they give him the showcase. But I don't like this one. It's just uh, it's, it's too far out of their wheelhouse. Listen, I wasn't going to defend the back half of this album either, man. So come on. <laughs> well, the and then, wait, you thought the synths were bad. Just wait till we get to one on one, okay? Because that's yeah. what it really that's when it really gets problematic. The uh, the public agreed with uh, with Chris. It, uh, album only reached twenty four in the charts. There's no hit single. Oh wait, b- before we get to one on one, there was something else I know we wanted to talk about briefly, and that is an EP that was released right around the time of All Shook Up that uh, uh, Chris thinks is even better than All Shook Up. I, I'm not sure about that, but but he'll make the argument. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, an EP called Found All the Parts, um, and it's been released, I think, um, subsequently on, in some of the later versions of the CDs, and I think maybe even the box set, but it was originally released a few months before All Shook Up. And I, I wonder if the quality of this EP and the sound of this EP is one of the reasons why All Shook Up was so disappointing at the time. So it's only four tracks. Uh, it starts with a live version of Day Tripper, Um and then a live version of a song called Can't Hold On, um, and followed by a song called Such a Good Girl, which is kind of a Beatles-y, almost has a, an Eleanor Rigby sound to it. And then the last track is Take Me, I'm Yours. Of those four, Can't Hold On and Take Me, I'm Yours are my favorites. Um, these are other examples of the bass-driven brooders I've been describing, these kind of darker-sounding songs Um that are just really propulsive and interesting Um, and more in keeping with the hard rock sound uh, uh, harder rock than, than certainly dream police and, um, and all shook up. I I really like this EP. And and if you guys, if any of you listeners like cheap trick, but want to dig a little deeper um, look for, look for the tracks on uh, found all the parts. You can find it as a bone. As, all of them are included on the reissue of All Shook Up, just mm-hmm. so you know. And and I agree that that Day Tripper cover is actually pretty damn solid. You know, they, they know what they're doing. Political Beats, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Chris Scalia with us, co-editor of Scalia Speaks. And we're talking about Cheap Trick. Here's where we have to pick up the pace a bit, guys, to make sure we squeeze in all we want in the time we try to stay within on these programs. And it won't be hard to do that with some of this 80s output. One-on-one, the next album in uh, 1982. Roy Thomas Baker from Queen and the Cars comes in to produce, gives it a much slicker, uh, new wave-ish feel to it. John Brandt That's comes your in. first red flag yes. right there, by the way. <laughs> John Brandt and comes in. And anytime Roy Thomas Baker comes into the mix, man, he, he made Yes sound terrible. <laughs> I don't think there's really any such thing as a good Queen album, man. Just bringing this guy in as commercial poison. I don't even think the Cars put out a great album, in my opinion. Uh, sorry to be such a crumb. No, you're fine. Uh, and, and you know, Chris mentioned earlier, this is an album too where Bun is reined in. He's basically playing click track on most of these uh, songs, which is ridiculous when you have a guy like Bunny Carlos playing behind the drum kit. 
the production is it, it leaves leaves things to be wanted. Uh, look out for number one. Robin's vocals are so far buried underneath that Roy Thomas Baker sludge uh, that you can hardly hear it. The songs you might know here, She's Tight, still play to this day. Look, that's a pretty decent song, at least that, that riff from Nielsen. Uh, and If You Want My Love, which uh, is a heavily Beatles-influenced song, there's about three different hooks inside of there that could carry a tune. So that's uh, probably the best song of the album. some pretty big missteps. I Want You, the first song of the album, is pretty darn awful. Robin also begins kind of growling and yelling a whole lot. Not He yelled on previous albums, but it's much more of a growl and a low sort of uh, sort of tone to his voice that begins to become apparent on, on, uh, on one-on-one. Saturday at Midnight's terrible. I Want Be Man is, a, is like a Devo rip that's just truly terrible. One-on-one to me is, is a pretty big failure. Oh, I want be man is so stupid. Um, I don't know. Again, Devo's, I I like them, but I don't know why Cheap Trick would want to try to sound like them. It's a bad decision. Um, uh, Even the singles, like If if You Want My Love. Yeah, I I think you mentioned this, Scott. Robin's voice is just strained, especially in the bridge. He's just trying to get too high. Mm Mm-hmm. Not even close to hitting notes. It's, it sounds like his voice is falling apart. I think that the production is bad, and I don't know, maybe it's the mixing or something, but Ro- I feel like Robin's voice is not as subtle as it is in the earlier albums, going to your point about how he's he's screaming. I love his, kind of his angry, daltry-esque yells in the early albums. I don't know if his voice is deteriorating here or if the mixing is different or what, but it's just it doesn't work on this album. Um, and even, you know, even the singles like She's Tight and um, If You Want My Love are, are, they're fine. They're the best songs on the album probably, but they don't compare to the earlier singles. This one was easy for me when I, I was, again, doing my little journey through the Cheap Trick discography to, to peg the moment where, okay, well, this is where they just fall off the cliff. This is where they run out of creativity. This is where it all goes to hell. Uh, because there's only one good song on this record, in my opinion, one really good song, and that is "If You Want My Love." I like that. I don't think that 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 Robin is straining too hard on that. I think you know he he really hits those notes. He gets the right kind of emotion out of them. I like that. But even in that song, you can hear that cheese just creeping into the background with those Mellotron synth parts. Yeah, you just think, oh, oh. You know, you're gonna have to bleep me here, Scott. But I was just like, oh, shit, the '80s. 
Oh, it's coming. It's taking them over. It's 1982, and now I'm hearing now I'm hearing the sound that would ruin music for the next seven years. <laughs> that's my problem with uh, that song. And the thing is, is that the rest of it doesn't compositionally come up to that. It's not. It's not the Doctor. It's not a travesty. It's not unlistenable. But there's just very little inspiration. And I would have thought. I absolutely thought when I was doing this little trip that, okay, well, then that's the story. That's the story of Cheap Trick. This is where they cease relevance because that's the way most career arcs go. I was wrong. I was wrong because I did not in any way expect what came next to be nearly as great as it was. And you want to cue that up for us, Scott? Sure. Uh, Next position, please. A title that actually comes from... Uh, a song that was written for Dream Police and then wasn't done until now, although the, the phrase is also on uh, inside High Priest of Rhythmic Noise from All Shook Up. Todd Rundgren comes in to produce Next Position, Please. This, uh, I'll try to give you, I know both of you guys like this a lot. I'll give you uh, the space to, to talk about it. To me, this is clearly, clearly the best album in between All Shook Up and Cheap Trick 97, which is the second self-titled album uh the 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 songwriting is sharper the lyrics uh they've been trending this way but these songs are about normal things love escapism things like that that's where the, the they're going lyrically buns back up in the mix he sounds sharper he sounds great on invaders of the heart uh late track on the album first two tracks uh on here are killer I Can't Take It, which is a Robin Zander uh, song that he wrote by himself, and Borderline, which is great. And I'll just say this. You like Borderline, go find on YouTube uh, Cheap Trick on the Alan Thicke Show from 1983, playing a live, live version of Borderline that kicks butt. It's, a great, it's an even better song live. Next Position, Please is a very, very good album, and again, clearly the best of the 80s for, for the band. I think this album is much better than All Shook Up. Um, I Can't Take It is one of my favorite favorite Cheap Trick songs. It It's very different from the earlier stuff. It's very poppy. It's kind of, you know, your, your uh, standard early 80s guitar pop song. Um, uh, Rick's guitars are a little janglier than usual. I like that. It's, there's a lot of jangle to that song, and I, I like me some jangle pop. So it was, I, I like that element to it. And Robin's voice, for all my complaints about the last album, his voice is fantastic in that song. His range is just beautiful. Bonnie's drums are just gold star. I think his drumming on this album makes the album. So there's so many songs on this album where his his drumming owns it. I agree about Borderline. Um, the, the first half of this album is, I think, perfect. 
uh, the third track is a song called I Don't Love I Don't Love Here Anymore. And in some versions it's misprinted as I Don't Love Her Anymore. Um, just a great Beatles vibe and just a cool shuffle to it. Just kind of makes you want to strut down the street, um, which I do all the time anyway, but this gives me justification for it. Uh, <laughs> next position, please. It, it kind of harkens back to their earlier songs where Robin puts on this weird British accent and is singing like, uh, you know, Roy Wood or Jeff Lynn or early move stuff, really kind of a warped humor, some body lyrics. Um, it's a lot of fun. And uh, let's see. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to talk for 30 minutes about this album, but uh, um, heaven's falling is a great song. The last one I'll talk about is one called invaders of the heart. Yeah. A stupid name. Um, makes me think of Space Invaders, yeah. but it, it starts off as my generation, um, and they, they pretend that they played that song by accident. Um, but uh, then they, after that fake false start, they move into their, their original song, Invaders of the Heart. But uh, Bunny's drumming is fantastic. It's just a chaotic mess of a fun song. And uh, I was, yeah, a high, definitely a highlight of the album and easily a highlight of their 80s material. Um, I'm going to confess, you know, we get a lot of questions sometimes on Twitter about when we'll be doing a Todd Rundgren episode <laughs> of Political Beats. Um, and I, I, I've got to admit, I don't have the courage to tell the, these good natured folks who query me that I don't like Todd Rundgren at all. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like him that much as a musician. I don't even like him that much as a producer. Even he, though he's he's worked with some of my favorite bands, I, I don't think that the stuff he's done with them is is my favorite work. So you can't believe what a shock it was for me to come to this album, uh, next position, please, and and you know see that he was the producer. And I gotta tell you, you know, I, I pulled it up on Wikipedia as I start listening, and I groaned. I was like, oh crap, another Todd Rundgren production. And I thought it would be terrible, but it was not at all. This is. I could even argue theoretically this is close could be their third best album. I really love this. And as you guys both said, uh the the first half of this I think is flawless. Now and of course it's one of those things we have to talk about is it the original version or is it the sort of, you know, artist <laughs> authorized release because they they were forced by the record label to do a cover of Dancing the Night Away which I think is crap. And I, I can't remember whether it was Chris or it was Scott who said that as well, but I completely agree with them. They're usually a band that's really good with covers. Yeah, this one just did not did not execute. But I can't take it. Is great. Borderline. I, it's in my top five. I love it. I just am so impressed with it. late in the game. Where you know, you know, again, you, you've exhausted all of your early great shots. You're writing new material. It's 1983. This is a song that is as good as anything Cheap Trick ever wrote or recorded in their career. I don't love here anymore. Next position, please. And yeah, Heaven's Falling and Invaders of the Heart. What a magnificent way to end the album.
doesn't rate as highly as the rest is that I would say that the middle part of it, it, it fades. I don't like 3D that much. Mm-hmm. I don't like, uh, you know, won't take no for an answer. Um, you know, Y O Y O Y. It's not bad, yeah, but it's sort of like you know, like you know, these songs are cheap trick on autopilot. But I'll take that kind of a good autopilot. And Rundgren knew what to get out of them. <clears throat> I'll take that over them uh, without any kind of inspiration. This album is uh, sort of like. Again, this is a band that surprised me so many times as I went through their discography. This, to me, was like the final and maybe the big surprise where I thought they were they were spent creatively. I thought they were exhausted, but they weren't. They had one last really, really big caliber bullet in the revolver, and this is the shot. And I really just want to recommend to people, I'm not going to be picking this one at the end of our show as one of my two favorite albums or my two essential albums, but it's really great. And it's like unknown. This is like, you know, you have to be like, it was out of print forever. You could not find it. You literally could not buy it. I think this may be the first time in the entire history of the internet where people (laughs) have talked about next position, please. (laughs) Because, because you're, it's like, who cares? But you should care because it's a great record. I'll, I'll even defend the middle of the album. I think 3D is a great song. The, 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 uh, the 80s effects are pretty lame, especially there's a middle vocal part where they yeah. goof around from the yeah. effects. It's stupid. But, That's what um, kills me. Yeah. Uh, Robin does some Roger Daltrey vocals here that I like, and uh, Bunny's drumming is fantastic again. And I, I love the way that the drumming blends right into the next track, Talk Too Much. Um, I think that they they did a disservice to the album by adding those tracks at the end in the in the expanded version. Um, I think all of the worst songs on the expanded version are ones that were not on the original. Um, so I didn't think that was a good idea, with the exception of dancing dancing the night away, which is terrible. Um, it's the only cover I know of. I think they did that is less rocking than the original. <laughs> uh, it's just a really stupid cover, and um, this might make you think more of. Um, Todd Rundgren, Jeff, he refused to produce this one, I think. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. I read it. Yeah. He, said, he, said, he thought it was just like too hack, and he was like, yeah. I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> well, we all like Next Position, position Please, and uh, we'll try to speed through the next two. If you guys want to stop me, feel free. Standing on the Edge and the Doctor. No, no, th- th- this is the full speed ahead part okay, for me, good. at least. Yeah. So, Standing on the Edge is terrible. It's terrible. Jack Douglas uh, produced it, but he backed out of mixing it. He had some trouble, legal trouble, I think. So, a guy named Tony Platt came in and mixed it, threw in all these keys and electric drums, and Bun hated it, and he insisted he be credited on the album with acoustic drums because the electric stuff he had nothing to do with. They had uh, Mark Radish came in to co-write some songs, played keyboards. It is wrong from the first notes of the album on a terrible song called Little Sister. Um, She's got motion, sounds like the theme from Miami Vice to me. Standing on the Edge, Rock All Night, low-grade Billy Squire is how I would describe it. Whoa! Yeah. Tonight It's You was the single from the album. You might know it, (laughs) and uh, it's, it's, it's fine, I guess, compared to the other garbage on standing on the edge i don't yeah, but know it still sounds like a rod stewart song as chris pointed out earlier yeah yeah and then the doctor was next in in 86 tony platt produces this album so you can see where we're going um this was this is a bad bad album it sounds to me like what 
like if Robin Zander wanted to do a solo album, this is what it would sound like because he's the only identifiable part. You can't hear Rick. You can't hear Bun. Uh, Tom Peterson's gone, so the only thing you, you you hear is 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 Xander's voice, and the songs are just slathered in layers and layers of keyboards and effects. Um, it's bad stuff. Outside of, I think one song is at least worth hearing, and that's "It's Only Love," uh, the final song on the album, which was a single. But find the single mix if you can, because it gets punched up in the right places. Um, I, I think that's a that's a decent song from the Doctor, but outside of that, it's a really bad album. I'm going to insult this album the worst way I can think of possibly to insult it is that it sounds like a Mick Jagger solo album from that <laughs> '80s era where she he was doing "She's the Boss," yes, and and primitive cool. Uh, yeah, these these are albums that I don't care how big a Stones fan you are, you never want to hear. They're the, they're the worst sort of '80s schlock where he was like. Well, you know, Keith Richards is just a hopeless drunk. I, I got to try to do something. Uh, yeah, and they didn't even do this. You know, Xander was still a part of Cheap Trick. This sounds like, as you said, like a terrible Cheap Trick solo album. Yeah. Oh, God, it's unbelievable. I listened to it once. I, I listened to everything else here at least twice. This is, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I recommend, I recommend everybody listen to this album to understand just how bad it is and just just how bad the 80s were to some bands mm-hmm. i mean this is entertainingly bad um rearview mirror is a great example or, yes. or love in a rearview mirror oh my god yeah it's so Everything bad. bad about the 80s the drums uh the synthesizer all the production values it it sounds like it to me it sounds like they wrote this hoping there were, a movie would come out called Love in a Rearview Mirror. It sounds like a prefab movie theme song. Um, and they were doing a lot of movies. Th- they, they, they wrote Mighty Wings around the same time. Yeah. I think that came out in 86, too. That was written by the guy who wrote Axel F. Harold Faltmeyer, yes. Yeah. So, um, and that's not a very good cheap trick song, Mighty Wings, but it is definitely better than anything on this album. Uh, the the next two albums, I know this is where Chris was introduced to the band, and he has some thoughts on Lap of Luxury and, and Busted. Lap of Luxury, the, the label made them use outside songwriters. Tom Peterson did return. The Flame came out of here, which went to number one. The story on The Flame, if you haven't heard it, is Epic was trying to revive two artists, Cheap Trick and Chicago. Uh, Chicago had put out an album after Peter Sotero left it. It didn't sell great, and so they were trying to help them. They are trying to help Cheap Trick. They had these two songs. They went to Cheap Trick and said, we got these two songs. They're both going to number one. You get one. Chicago gets one. We're giving you first choice. Do you want The Flame, or do you want Look Away? And Cheap Trick, being no fools, said... Well, we'll take the flame. Chicago got Look Away. They both did go to number one. I think the flame holds up all right. Look Away is one of the worst number one songs of that decade. That is a terrible song. Um, But Lap of Luxury went to 16. They had a number one hit. Gave them busted. They tried to replicate the formula. Uh, And my notes here said it sounds like the worst of Eddie Money. Uh, during this era so to tell us why there's at least some redeeming value here chris scalia all right i acknowledge that i i like both of these albums but understand why nobody else would i recognize that a lot of it is probably sentimental value because i associate them with with uh you know my childhood middle school early high school um i think the flame's a good song as i was saying at the beginning it's it's 
a fine power ballad. Uh, people love much much worse songs than this. Um, it's it's too bad it was their only number one. They deserved better than that, but I'm glad they got a number one. And I, I think for 80s power ballads, this one holds up well. Uh, my favorite on Lap of Luxury is the first track, Let Go. Um, it's just kind of a good telling off song, kind of a good breakup song. It's got a good good riff, cheesy 80s horns, the sorts of horns. I think they're horns, but they could be synthesizers. <laughs> really tell. Um, but uh, I really like that song, and I like Xander's just got a great sneer in it, and, and again, the, it's got a good riff. Um, that was one of my psych-up songs before uh, before track meets and cross-country meets, so um, uh, I wasn't very good, so it didn't really work well, but still, I like the song. I took you through. And then there's a cover of Don't Be Cruel. It's it's cheesy, but I vividly remember saying on a school bus in middle school that, <laughs> that it was better than the original. <laughs> and everybody got in agreement. statement. Who could challenge me? Um, but uh, I was wrong. I still enjoy it, though. That's um, the that was the first. Down, by the way, the, is, uh, the first uh, the first Elvis Presley cover to make the top ten. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, I didn't know it did that well. There you go. Yeah, they had five singles from this album, which is pretty remarkable. Um, Ghost Town was another one, and that was, I think, the first of two songs uh, that Diane Warren wrote with or for them. Yes. Um, Uh. Yeah, this was the better of the two. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a tolerable song. Uh, so yeah, it's it's better than the worst of their '80s albums. I I have some sentimental attachments uh, to it, but again, I, I recognize that um, for most Cheap Trick fans, it's not going to be up there. Um, <laughs> Busted has a couple of songs I like, uh, like Back in Blue. The first track is is some, I don't know. It, it's it's a pretty good '80s song. I, I think the problem with Busted is is that um, it's Bunny has just stopped drumming and he's just started thumping. Um, and that really holds the album back. Um, uh, but there are, there, there are some pretty nice songs on, on busted. There's a cover of, um, uh, wizards, uh, song rock and roll tonight. Uh, wizard is the band Roy Woods founded after the move. Mm-hmm. I like the cover of that. Again, it's rockier than the original. Um, and had to make you mine is a really nice, uh, Beatlesy pop confection. So Chris says, that the flame isn't really worse than any other pop hit that people have loved. But I have to really interrogate him about this. <laughs> Is it? Are you sure about that, Chris? Well, I'm talking. Are you really sure about that? Well, I'm, I'm putting it next to its competition. Okay. It- but I can put it next to its competition and I can say that like, you know, okay, 1988, you've got, you know, what do you got? Poison. 
You yeah. got you got uns, you got every rose has its thorn. Yeah. You've got you Madonna saying express yourself. Then no, you have no, that's a different category. No, 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 no. Hey, the, the oh, category, no. my friend. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my friend, but you have set the terms. And <laughs> you have unfortunately set the terms disadvantageously to yourself because the terms are number one hit singles or big top 40 charting hit singles. And oh my God, the flame is that classic to me example of uh, We were ta- again, a thing we were talking about earlier. I had never, I, I, it was a big like radio listener at this time. I, I was unaware that this song existed, and then I listened to it, and then I realized, I think I've heard this song. <laughs> I think I've heard this song. I'm going crazy. I'm losing sleep. I'm too far. I'm in way too deep over you. You'll always be the one. You will. Like, you know, you, you hear, like, those generic lines that could only have been written by pro, a professional right. songwriter. You can't see me doing, like, the, you know, the, the, the two-fingered, two-fisted scare quote thing here. Professional songwriter, which I would use to describe, and I'm doing it again now, Diane Warren, um, who didn't write this song. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is just such horrible schlock. This is the antithesis of cheap trick as we know them. And there's just something so dispiriting about the fact that their number one hit was a song they had no involvement in writing. They just recorded almost on spec as hired guns. It's a terrible song. There's no reason that anyone has ever remembered it since then. I'm sorry to be such a negative Nancy. Uh, But no, you know what? Sorry, not sorry. I, I stand by what I said. This is, um, they did better music after this, which again shocks me. But my God, this was just a dark, dark time. I think one of the, one of the things that hurts the flame is that uh, shortly after it was a hit, Eternal Flame came out. And <laughs> the songs are, are far too similar, especially with the, the holding the note on the flame. Um, I'm not sure the Bangles is really who want, they wanted to be compared to. Uh, <laughs> so that didn't do them any favors. But, right. you know, you'd be amazed. People know the flame and they don't know that cheap. They just don't know who does it. And that's too bad. Uh, yeah. Or maybe or, or maybe if you hate the maybe song, it's maybe fine. it's good. Busted, stiffed, and uh, Epic dropped Cheap Trick. That's okay. They found a home at Warner Brothers. They loved him. They gave him a 10 record album deal, which would... Uh, which would last for one before Warner Brothers dropped them. The A&R guys that brought them in were fired before Woke Up With A Monster was released. Woke Up With A Monster actually charted lower than The Doctor, if that means anything to you. The songs are a little bit better, I will say. Uh, they picked the wrong single, though. The, the single they went with was the title track, Woke Up With A Monster, and it's not really great. There is a song right afterwards called You're All I Want to Do, which is very good. And uh, Jim Peterick from Survivor is a co-writer on You're All I Want to Do. There's a sing-along chorus. It's, it's their best song in, in quite a while, uh, I think. Um, yeah, but they did not, not, did not pick it a- out as a single. I look at you and you're, you're 
Whooping with the Monster was the single. Bad bad lyrics, bad riff, kind of a bore of a song in my mind. And Woke Up With a Monster, uh, I just remember seeing Woke Up With a Monster in every cutout bin in every store I walked into around 1995. You could get even, more, even more so than R.E.M.'s Monster. I remember yes. seeing it yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> that so, and uh, Spin Doctor's second album. Which I, which I don't I, know. Remember the remember uh, title of that one? Either. Yes, <laughs> it was everywhere. <laughs> um, go yeah, ahead. The, one, of, one of the problems with "Woke Up with the Monster" is that every song is four minutes long. Uh, there, there's one that's like three minutes and fifty-two seconds, but um, you know, at least some of their bad '80s albums had the virtue of only having short songs. All of the songs here are too long. Um, I don't. I don't really like any of them except for maybe "Tell Me Everything." That's a pretty good. Pretty good bluesy, bluesy number. Um, but I agree, the single's really bad. Very annoying. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to recommend this one. The next one I will recommend, Cheap Trick, uh, the second self-titled. It's sometimes referred to Cheap Trick 97 after Warner Brothers dropped in the sound with a uh, label called Red Ant, which would go bankrupt about four weeks after this album was released. Um, but it's produced by Cheap Trick, and it's good. Um, this is the first album in four ever in which you can actually hear the band members working together on tape you can hear the their interplay uh, on some of these songs and they sound great the first track anytime quick quick story on anytime i was at uh, a, a a bowling alley uh a bowling alley bar which had live music in rockford and robin zander's daughter holland is in a band there called the sensations P- pretty good cover band and um they launched into Anytime. And I'm the only person in the bar that has any idea what this song is because, A, no one bought Cheap Trick 97 and certainly no one heard one of the non-singles from the album except me. And I'm going nuts because they're covering this this song that only I know from Cheap Trick 97. Uh, so that, that was fun times. There's a great song in here called Hard to Tell which is a little like You're All I Want to Do. It's that, that kind of vibe to it. Very power popish, great chorus. And then two songs that are just killer. Carnival Game, very Beatles-esque uh, kind of song. Tom Peterson has this wonderful descending bass line in the chorus. Uh, Carnival Game's great. I've got a kaleidoscope of memories Visions of you locked up inside of me Can't you see? We single they tried to work from this album is one called Say Goodbye, which also is good. The uh, it's, it's a very mature sounding song. Woke Up, Woke Up With The Monster sounds like they were trying to be what they thought it would sound like if they were 25 again. Cheap Trick 97 is it's much more mature songwriting and much more mature uh, production. Say Goodbye is an excellent song too. I really recommend seeking out and listening to Cheap Trick 97. 
I really like this album too. Um, you know, it's not, it's not in my, you know, my, my top few, but it is a pretty close to a return to form. And I, I think, uh, especially the tracks you mentioned, I, I, well, I don't like any time as much as you do, but hard to tell carnival game and say goodbye are just beautiful songs. I really enjoy those. Um, it's, it's strange. Uh, for as much as many accolades as they got from uh, grunge musicians like Cobain and Corgan, and Corgan played with them on a live album that they released in '97 called "Music for Hangovers," um, they um, they never re- they couldn't take advantage of that. I, I think I heard an interview with I think it was Nielsen saying, "Yeah, that did us no good." You know, uh, all of the praise we got from grunge music- musicians earned us no, no credit, no, no, uh, no sales no or yeah. anything. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it's because they just didn't know what to do. They, they they didn't understand why they fit into that period. Their dark, brooding stuff would have worked then. And woke up with a monster didn't take advantage of that. Ninety seven doesn't. Nineteen ninety seven doesn't really do it either. But um, it still feels like they're comfortable in that era. They're not trying too hard to be relevant. They're playing to their strengths, but updating the sound a little bit like hard to tell in particular. It feels like a, a classic cheap trick song with current production techniques without going overboard. So it's a, it's a surprisingly good album. They didn't figure out how to take advantage of it until a decade later. Yeah, exactly. And here's the thing. like I, I'm the guy who doesn't really, really have much of any knowledge of this later period. I'll, I won't even lie. I've never even heard Special One. So That's if you okay. guys have anything to say about it, I got nothing. That's a but totally I, forgettable album, so don't worry about it. But I did listen to Rockford. And I was just like, hey, you know, I thought this band had already had their one comeback and then faded into oblivion. And then it just done the whole, you know, it's the nostalgia circuit at that point. Rockford is a fantastic record. Yep. I, I don't even know where the hell this came from. Everything on the, on the record is like, you know, band credits, four of them, all of them writing together. Unfortunately, Linda Perry, the woman <laughs> from um, Four Non uh, Blondes. Blondes, who write, wrote, you know, uh, What's Up, you know, he, you know, and yeah. I say, What's Going On. She did write one song, co-write one song on this album. We're going to forgive him for that because the rest of this record is really, really good. And I don't know how it was possible, even though, yes, there, there's some things that are, again, you know, you know kind of, Self-conscious throwbacks to earlier years. Eau Claire, we talked about that earlier. Come on, come on. Well, that was one song from their, you know, from yeah. but now it's come on, come on, come on. Three yeah. times, yeah. 
I'm just sorry though. This is a fun record to listen to. The last thing you would have expected from a band that was like, yeah, as you said, like 35 years old at this point. It's again, you know, I mean, this is not like a, a an epical album, an earth shaking album, but it's like, yeah, in 2007 or 2006 or whatever, for a band that's been around for this long to still make something that you would want to listen to. I'm shocked. Yeah, I remember when that came out and it was getting good reviews and I was skeptical. I thought, you know, it might be one of those instances where people, reviewers just want it to be good. So they say <laughs> it is. But it, it it has a few really good tracks. Uh, if It Takes a Lifetime is just wonderful. Just great, yep. great harmonies uh, in the chorus. The best song for sure on the album. Yeah. like every night and every day uh again a soaring chorus but it's got kind of it's a more melancholy song um those are those are the standouts but there are a number of of pretty solid songs on that album you guys basically said all i wanted to say about rockford which is i'll summarize by saying this if you are the cheap trick enough of a cheap trick fan and listen to two plus hours of us talking about cheap trick (laughs) and you haven't heard 97 or rockford just do it because you'll like it. It'll be worth your time. Uh, Rockford harmonies, hooks, guitars. It just sounds great. Welcome to the world, the first song. And I, I know Linda Perry co-wrote it, but Perfect Stranger doesn't bother me that much, even though Linda Perry is a co-write on it. Uh, but the, especially the first half of Rockford is just so good. And the cover of the album was used as um, a vehicle sticker in Rockford, and it was the last year that the city of Rockford mandated vehicle stickers. So if you go around Rockford, almost every car still has the Rockford uh, album cover in their front window for the last vehicle sticker issued by the city of Rockford. little trivia for you there. That's fantastic. Um, I want to mention the latest just quickly for a couple of reasons. One is there is a dynamite song on there called Sick Man of Europe, which of course throws back to the original or one of the, uh, you know, previous bands that Rick was in. It's a slamming song, man. It is great. It's it's got a huge bass line for Tom. It's buzzy Rick Nielsen guitar, full of energy. Great, great song. album from what i know is this is the first time that they really weren't writing new things and they were recycling old clips 
old riffs, old ideas. They'd go back to the archives and pull out stuff and hear something and what can we make of it. They pulled a song off Robin Zander's, or a B-side from Robin Zander's unreleased solo album from the early 90s. It was kind of odds and ends. And if people don't know, Bunny Carlos is not touring with the band anymore and there were lawsuits involved so it got pretty pretty deep why is he not with the band anymore one of them one of the reasons is the latest bun really hated the latest and he hated the way that it was put together from, from what i from what i know so there was a there was some friction there bun and robin were not getting along very well at all uh they uh cheap trick was asked to do a hundred shows in vegas playing uh uh, Sergeant Pepper front to back and uh, Robin only wanted to do 50 and Bun wanted to do all 100 and they fought about that and Bun didn't like playing exceedingly long set lists and and uh, the rest of the guys wanted to play longer set lists and at some point they said you know we don't really like you anymore <laughs> and uh, and told them not to show up for a gig and that was it now now Bun being a very you know Jeff said earlier it looks like an accountant that walked into the frame uh, Bun structured his contract very shrewdly in that despite the fact he no longer tours with Cheap Trick, he still gets a quarter of all touring revenue. He is still smart man. Yep. He is very smart man. He is still a quarter vote as to anything Cheap Trick does and gets a quarter revenue of everything they make, even though he sits at home in Rockford and plays at Mary's Place uh, twice a month in, in downtown Rockford. So um, Dax Nielsen, Rick's son, is now playing in the band. And they've released two albums in the past few years, one called Bang, uh, Bang Zoom Crazy Hello, one called uh, We're All 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 Right. There's actually another album coming out this year as they kind of empty the vaults of these ideas they've had uh, piling up through the years. I've heard, them, I've heard both of the new ones once. They're fine. They're okay. It definitely highlights more the hard rock cheap trick than the power pop cheap trick. The melodies aren't quite as strong, but they are loud. Um, and I don't mean that it's quite, quite a backhanded compliment as it sounds, but they're loud. They're not quite as jangly and melody-driven as some of the previous albums. Um, if I can say just a word really quickly about the latest, the, the last one with Bunny. Um, the single from that album is When the Lights Are Out. It's a cover of a Slade song. Yes. Um, I love that they're going back to, to that kind of trashy glam influence. Um, and again, this is another example of the, one of their covers being an improvement upon the original. The, the Slade could rock pretty well, but I think Cheap Trick outdoes them here. Um, I, when I heard this song, I, I just loved it. I was listening to it again and again when it first came out, and I got in touch with my friend Dan. I hadn't been in touch with him for a while. He's the guy who introduced me to Cheap Trick, and I said, man, this song's good. you got to hear it. And so it's a nice little reunion for us. Um, yeah, I agree with you uh, that the that – the, the more recent albums are fine. They don't, nothing on those albums really excite me very much. There's one, um, sorry, there's another one on the latest, uh, Here Comes a Miracle, which is really, I think the closest thing, thing they came to a, a John Lennon song. It's okay. Um, they've also, they also released a Christmas album. Yeah. So you would include the, the, the two studio albums that Scott mentioned. They released a Christmas album last fall. Um, mostly covers from what I can tell. But again, the covers, they're picking good songs. They're picking Wizards. I wish it, it could be Christmas every day. And they're, they also do um, uh, Slade's Merry Christmas, Everybody, which is probably the greatest Christmas rock song. And they cover that um, Saturday Night Live song, I Wish It Was Christmas Today, <laughs> that 
really silly Jimmy Fallon skit that Julian Casablancas recorded as a full song a few years ago, and and they do it. It's I don't like their version that much, but I just love that they did it. I I just I love Cheap Trick's taste in music. That's one of the big attractions for me of them. And that Christmas album, um, you know, it's a Christmas album, so it's not going to be great, but but it, it it still reflects some of what I love about that band. All right, that should bring us to the portion of the program where we take a look at our two key albums and the five songs that everyone should hear from our featured band, Cheap Trick. And we head to our guest first. That's Christopher Scalia, at CJ Scalia on Twitter. Scalia Speaks, he's the co-editor of that book. Chris, your albums, then your songs. Okay, my two albums are Heaven Tonight. Uh, for all the reasons we mentioned, it's, it's just a... Uh, fantastic uh, combination of their hard rock and their, their lighter popular sensibilities. Um, and then uh, next position, please. Uh, I just think it's a remarkably underrated album, especially when you consider the, the original version of it. Um, the first half in particular is fantastic. Um, and it's just uh, an example of, of Bunny Carlos uh, really driving that album. I, I really enjoy all the, all, what he does on virtually all of the tracks there. Um, it, you know, it's weird. It, it doesn't, it, it has some low points that the earlier albums don't have, but I, I really enjoy it. And especially, uh, the lead single, um, I can't take it alone, which, which leads me to my five tracks. Are we doing those already? Yes. Go for it. Okay, good. Um, all right. So I'm going to pick in no particular order and I should say I am excluding surrender and I want you to want me, uh, I love those songs. Those are my favorites, but I kind of assume that that those are givens. Those those are just kind of taken for granted. So I'm excluding <laughs> that, and, and I'm cheating in another way too that you'll find out in a second. Uh, I can't take it. Uh, is uh, just a wonderful song. Um, as I said, I think Robin's vocals are wonderful in it, and it's it's atypical, but they really kind of nail that early '80s uh, guitar guitar pop um, style. Uh, and, for some reason, it reminds me of Hang On Loosely. If you like Hang On Loosely by 38 Special, check <laughs> it out. Um, uh, Come On, Come On and Southern Girls are consecutive tracks on um, in color. And uh, I'm going to cheat and put them together like it's <laughs> We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You. Um, in part because they're both awesome and, and uh, Robin's vocals sound the same. But I talked about why I love both of those songs earlier. Um, got to pick something from Ad Budicon, and uh, you guys talked about how great Ain't That a Shame is. I agree. Uh, that's going to be my Ad Budicon track here. Uh, they played it in their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. By the way, they were introduced by Kid Rock, which gives you a sense <laughs> of how underestimated and underappreciated Cheap Trick are. Should have been somebody better than that doing it. Um, but uh, Ain't That a Shame is just great. Uh, the way the way they jam together. Um, and, and take that song in interesting directions. Uh, number four, I'm going to go with Let Go from Lap of Luxury. Um, again, some of it's sentimental value, but I, I just think it's a, a pretty good uh, pretty good rock song. Um, and I always enjoy listening to it. I always uh, listen to it at least two times in a row with the volume full blast. And uh, finally, I'm going to go with uh, The House is Rockin' with Domestic Problems for all the reasons we mentioned. Um, just a great rocking song one of the bass driven songs where xander's vocals are just really really kind of angry but somehow fun at the same time 
Uh, all right. Uh, I'm going to zoom through my albums and, and songs. So uh, I, I do want to tell two quick stories that I didn't have a chance to talk to, uh, talk about during the course of the uh, the show. One is, you know, Rick and Bun still live in Rockford. And so if you uh, if you shop at Woodman's on uh, on Perryville oh. late at night in Rockford, you will find Rick Nielsen picking out cantaloupe and, you know, grabbing canned vegetables off the, the shelves. And I bumped into him. Um, I think just twice. No, I didn't. I mean, I saw him at Woodman's because I did my shopping late at night too. Uh, so Rick's Rick's around town all the time, and so and and so was Bun. Other thing is, uh, Bun's mom, uh, a wonderful woman named Vi Carlson, was a f- frequent listener and caller to my morning radio show in Rockford. So we talked to Vi in Rockford all the time, and she enjoyed us so much. Apparently. Uh, it's in her obituary, actually. If you pull it up from the Rockford paper, it says, uh, you know, Vi Carlson was a uh, love listening to WROK radio and called in all the time. So it was sweet. Now, book. that's a tribute. See? That is amazing. That's pretty good. I, it was. It, she was just a sweet, sweet woman. Uh, and it was, again, a frequent caller to the show. So it was, you know, talk to Bunny Carlos's mom all the time. Uh, okay, so uh, my two albums, Heaven Tonight for sure, virtually flawless start to finish. Second one went back and forth quite a bit. Ask me tomorrow, maybe I'll say Dream Police, but today uh, I will say In Color. So In Color, Heaven Tonight, the two albums. Five songs, I'm grabbing one from each of the first five studio albums. From uh, from Cheap Trick, uh, Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School. Uh, perfect, I think, summation of everything going on in the first album. I like you. Good to see you from In Color, the second choice. From uh, Heaven Tonight, Stiff Competition, Dream Police, Gimme Way of the World, and from uh, All Shook Up, which again, I, I have to tell you how much more I enjoy it now than I did uh, just three weeks ago. Uh, Stop This Game, first track and the uh, the only real single from that album, uh, a great song. Those are my five songs, two albums. To you, Jeff. Uh, you know, the wonderful thing about going last is that I get to <laughs> clown on all of the prior moves that have gone before me. And I'm going to just uh, point out to, uh, well, you know what, before I get to that, I will say that the first of my two albums, and this was easy because I already telegraphed it, is Heaven Tonight. I think Heaven Tonight is as close to a perfect cheap trick album as they get. The other one I will pick is Dream Police. And the thing I was about to say is that Scott, being the coward that he is, was going to pick Dream Police. And so I said that I was going to pick it too. And he thought, oh, I really love this band. I want everybody to get all these albums. So he went with In Color. In Color is a great album too. Man. <laughs> He's, You're not going wrong either way. You're fine. I'm just so surprised at how great this inconsistency Consistent this music was, and then I had known nothing about it up until this point. So my two picks are Heaven Tonight and Dream Please. My four, my five songs. Again, uh, I was going to say that Taxman Mr. Thief would be my first pick. I love that song, 
But you know what? Uh, again, the, the privilege of going last. Here's a late scratch, and I'm going to go instead. If I pick one song from the debut album, it'll be He's a Whore, which I just think is such a funny reversal of expectations and an incredibly solid punk rock riff, a fantastic song, and uh, a version of the band that kind of, I think, ceased to exist or not ceased to exist, but certainly got sort of the rough edges on that song got sanded away as they moved along later in their career. Um, the next song I'll pick is downed from in color, which I think is, is uh, the darkest song in in color as Chris pointed out, but also the best song. Uh, I think that's just a magnificent, almost operatic track that covers a whole range of emotions. It's just beautifully musical. Uh, Surrender, uh, you know, Chris said he wasn't going to name it because it was too easy. Uh, I've always been a man to take the easy way out. <laughs> I, will, I will mention Surrender. Surrender is fantastic. Surrender is the perfect embodiment of what Heaven Tonight is uh, great with, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be at least on one of our three lists. Way of the World from Dream Police. It could have been four other songs. I think Dream Police, as I said, is one of their two great albums. What a fantastic song, uh, especially that play out at the end. And then the last one I'll pick is Borderline. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know it's easy to say that you know after the that first burst of creativity, that uh, you know cheap trick, you know kind of you know, went on a downslope. But uh, again. Next position, please, man. You know, you know. There's a reason that Chris cited this as one of his favorites. He's not wrong. He's really not wrong. This was very close to being mine. I think only kind of the weaker second half lets it down in any way. There are so many great songs on this, and I think Borderline as the number two track on it, uh, it kind of embodies how shockingly creative after such a long burst of creativity it actually is uh, again when you you come to a band for the first time you listen to them you realize the amount of effort and creative output that they have to put in to getting these these records out in such a short span of time you expect exhaustion you expect failure you expect a petering out and then for them to come up with songs like that on an album like that um, so relatively late into their quote heyday uh, that was a miracle, and that's a great song, and I am shocked to say that this is a great band, one that I am going to be coming back to a lot in the future. The Political Beach Look at Cheap Trick. We thank our guest, Christopher Scalia. Find him on Twitter at CJ Scalia, co-editor of Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived, a collection of his late father's speeches. Also find his work, Washington Post, National Review, Weekly Standard, Wall Street Journal, elsewhere. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you guys very much. I had a blast. 
We did, too, a good episode. I am glad, uh, Jeff Blair, that you finally had the opportunity to take in some cheap trick. Yes, and by the way, you know, I, I often say, hey, we'll do it this week or we'll do it next week. And uh, recently I haven't been able to say that, but for once I can say that and mean it. We'll do it next week, and I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that. Uh, you can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. At Scott Bertram on Twitter. Remember, subscribe to our feed for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews. Find us on Twitter as well, at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.